I think in a very odd way, Deshaun Watson has benefited from how uncomfortable the allegations against him are to discuss in polite company and certainly on television. I can speak for myself, it's for this show to some degree. We have stayed away from this story uh, probably more than we should have in a way I don't think we would have if Deshaun was accused of hitting, physically punching or slapping 22 women. But because if you read the lawsuit, it is almost impossible to discuss in detail at all on television. We, I personally didn't really know how to do it, so for a long time we've, we've stayed away from it. When the NFL's Cleveland Browns picked up Deshaun Watson from the Houston Texans late last week, the Browns gained one of the best quarterbacks in the league. The team also picked up a lot of controversy. Watson hasn't played since 2020 because of sexual misconduct allegations. 22 women have civil cases against him, and we're going to be discussing those allegations at length. Earlier this month, a grand jury declined to indict Watson on criminal charges, making his return to the field possible. Lindsay Jones reports on the NFL for The Athletic. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you just briefly tell us about these 22 cases against Deshaun Watson? Sure. So 22 women have filed civil complaints um, alleging various forms of sexual misconduct um, against Deshaun Watson um, for various things that happened during massage appointments. These are all licensed massage therapists who Deshaun Watson reached out to um, allegedly over Instagram, over direct messages to come and perform work. They've um, accused him of various forms of sexual misconduct from groping, fondling um, to other sorts of un wanted sexual uh, contact. And knowing that, the Browns gave him a $230 million guaranteed contract, which is a record. Is it surprising to see a deal like that for a player facing those kinds of allegations? It was. The contract numbers were certainly stunning, as well as the way that the contract was structured, where the first year of that deal for 2022 has a low base salary of around a million dollars. So ultimately, if he is is suspended by the NFL, it won't be a huge financial penalty. So it it was stunning in terms of the, the draft compensation that they gave up to the Texans to acquire him and the amount of money that he was given, given the uncertainties about his availability to play later this year. Watson has not spoken publicly about this. Is there an argument to be made that he should be allowed to continue with his career until these claims are resolved, until they are proven? Sure, that's the that's the argument that, you know, he and his legal team have made that, you know, he is not facing any sort of criminal charges. There are only civil allegations at this point. Do you believe the NFL ultimately will take some kind of disciplinary action against him? There are multiple instances where the NFL and Commissioner Roger Goodell suspended players for uh, personal conduct violation, uh, absent criminal charges. It's just really hard to predict, though, exactly what um, the NFL is going to do. We know their investigation is open. They've interviewed at least 10 of the women, although it's been months, their lawyer has told us, since they've done any of these these interviews. Um, so it's, it seems to be a slow process, and they have yet to interview Deshaun Watson. So we don't know exactly how this is going to happen, but it is certainly possible that at some point in the 2022 season, Deshaun Watson would be suspended. What's the reaction been from fans in Cleveland? 
I think it's been very mixed. You know, I've heard directly from a number of fans, um, particularly female fans who are really frustrated, really unhappy, are ready to give up their their long fandom of the Browns because of this decision. Um, and then, you know, of course, there are fans who are starved to win and starved for a star quarterback who are, you know, willing to give the team the benefit of the doubt. So I think it's been very mixed reaction, um, but definitely some fans that are upset. We've talked about the team and about the NFL more broadly. Do you think this says something about the Me Too movement and the narrative of accountability and sensitivity? Was that overstated? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been really hard, right? I think as, as a woman who covers the NFL, it's been hard to kind of reconcile the things that I've read in these complaints and, you know, the reporting on that side with the contract numbers. Um, and it's been a reminder that, you know, the NFL isn't really any better equipped to handle crimes against women than society is in general. Lindsay Jones is a reporter with The Athletic covering the NFL. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. So where is Mr. Freeman traveling to? Oh, heading back to Chicago. Mm, Robert, this bus is going south. Huh? No, that's not right. It's supposed to be going north. Oh, no. You must have gotten on the wrong bus. Oh, damn it. Where's this bus going? To Birmingham. Birmingham? God damn it, that's the worst. Let me off. Jesus Christ. This is all that white man's fault. Most people might not think often about their state constitution, but Alabama's governing document has been hotly debated since it was written in 1901. Earlier this month, the Alabama Senate passed some important changes to the constitution that will be on the ballot for voters this fall. NewsHour Weekend special correspondent Megan Thompson reports from Montgomery for our series Alabama Reckoning exploring the state's efforts to address the racism of its past. We gotta bring her to an end. Felt Thompson and Evan Milligan share two passions, music and politics. In 1901, they got together. together. What a a very sweet occasion. We're trying to change the playing field here through music. They put out an album in February through an artist's collective called Shape the Field, using art to encourage more civic engagement. Their new songs are all about political issues. A song about uh, social justice work. Alabama's prisons, um, our state constitution. Back in 1901, they got together to make our homeland the greatest. Sit down, the constitution. You might be wondering, why would anyone want to write a song about a state constitution? That document is despicable and disgusting. Really, 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 really awful. Yes. How so? I say in the song, written with a devil's pen, because it was specifically written to keep people of my hue in a certain place. No more stealing votes from the black folks. We'll just take their rights away. It turns out the state constitution of Alabama has been the subject of criticism and contest since it was first drafted at the turn of the last century. So we're looking at the original signed copy of Alabama's state constitution of 1901. Steve Murray is the director of the Alabama Department of Archives and History. We, the people of the state of Alabama, in order to establish justice... Murray explains that after Reconstruction ended in Alabama in the mid-1870s, A coalition of white agricultural and industrial elites came to power. They sought lower taxes and lax regulation. But a rival populist movement made up of African-Americans and rural whites threatened their control. There were legitimate political challenges in the form of the populists who 
came close to actually winning important elections in state government in the 1890s. So the adoption of this document in 1901 was intended to legally shrink the electorate and to consolidate power. To write the new constitution, 155 white men gathered in Montgomery in May 1901. John Knox, the president of the convention, made their goal clear to establish white supremacy in this state. Alabama voters approved the new constitution that fall in an election riddled with fraud. In some majority black counties, more people were recorded as voting for it than actually lived there. This is something that's painful to see and read, <laughs> but this is the reality. The headline says the citizens of Alabama declare for white supremacy and purity of ballot. The new constitution made law several tactics to suppress the black vote. Either owning land or owning personal property of a certain value, being able to pay a poll tax, being able to pass a literacy test. And it worked. The number of black Alabamians registered to vote fell from 180,000 in 1900 to fewer than 3,000 by 1903. The new constitution also segregated schools and banned interracial marriage. And to satisfy the drafters' financial interests, it capped the property tax at a low rate. The state's tax structure is actually created within its core governing document, which is unusual. Most states do not operate that way. And to make sure those dissenting rural areas were kept in check, the Constitution took power away from municipalities and centralized it in the legislature. Today, the offensive sections on race are no longer in force. They've been struck down by amendment, federal law, and the Supreme Court. But the racist language is still sitting in the document. And other sections that are in force still contain references to the poll tax and school segregation. It's despicable that it's actually written in a legal document. You will be looked at as less than. You will be looked at as trash. You will be looked at as do for me, but I won't do for you. That pervades, uh, you know, our history since then and, and well into today. The way that that system was designed, the racial lens of it, and that's still very real here as far as, you know, every metric. Well, what I have in my hand today is one of the most significant things that I've done as a member of this body. Marika Coleman is a member of the Alabama House of Representatives. And what this resolution does is removes the racist language from the Alabama State Constitution. Coleman's resolution would eliminate references to the poll tax and school segregation and delete sections that have already been repealed. It passed the Alabama Senate unanimously this month and will go to a statewide vote this fall. For Coleman, it's partly about improving Alabama's reputation. And when I think about all of the new industry that we try to recruit here, many people, the only image that they have of Alabama is hoses on African-American youth in the streets of, of Birmingham. That's not who we are. We're not perfect, but that's not who we are today. Coleman also proposes deleting a section about involuntary servitude. No form of slavery shall exist in this state, and there shall not be any involuntary servitude otherwise than for the punishment of crime of which the party shall have been duly convicted. The 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution contains nearly identical language, as do 19 other state constitutions. Opponents argue it legalizes forced labor in prisons. In Alabama, it was used until 1928 to justify the state's convict lease system. Prisoners, overwhelmingly black and often arrested on trumped-up charges, were leased to private industry to do harsh manual labor for no pay. It was a horrible institution, and Alabama was the last state to abolish the convict lease system.
In the last four years, three states have deleted language on involuntary servitude. And Tennessee will have an amendment on the ballot this fall, like Alabama's. I hope Alabama, which oftentimes, and it's so sad to say, is 48 or 49th or sometimes 50th, except for in football, that in this incident, that we are ahead of the eight ball or we're at the top, and maybe we can be an example for other states around the country. While Coleman's resolution would eradicate these dated racist provisions, it won't touch some of the other ideas from 1901 that continue to hamper the state. Today, Alabama has the second to lowest tax collections per capita in the nation. To fund operations and social services, the state relies heavily on the sales tax, which falls disproportionately on the poor. If a town or county wants to raise taxes or make other changes, they can. But they must do it through an amendment to the Constitution, which requires approval by a supermajority of the legislature, and then, in some cases, the voters of the entire state. A lot of the time we spend in the legislature is on local issues, an issue that only impacts one county or one city. And this so, creates um, another problem. Since 1901, the document has been amended almost 1,000 times. At somewhere around 400,000 words, Alabama's Constitution is 50 times longer than the U.S. Constitution. Not only is it the longest state constitution by far, it's thought to be the longest constitution in the world. Coleman says the sheer length of the document makes it almost incomprehensible, as her recent work on a voter fraud task force demonstrated. And even as going through the election articles was really hard. Just one topic, really hard, because it would refer to one article or one、um, code section. That code section would then disavow another code section. It's crazy. So you're a lawyer and a state legislator, and you're having a hard time. And I was having a hard time. A whole group of us were having a hard time. To help make it at least a little bit more user friendly, Coleman proposes to recompile the whole document, grouping amendments by county and putting economic development provisions in the same place. There have been numerous attempts to overhaul the Constitution over the years, including a lawsuit that made it to the Supreme Court, reforms proposed by seven governors, Democrat and Republican, and repeated calls for a new constitutional convention. Most all have failed, stymied by the legislature, courts, or special interests. Coleman's resolution has had virtually no opposition, partially because it won't touch the issues that have been controversial in the past, which raises the question: How much of a difference will it actually make? Some people said, "Well, what does this really do? Your state constitution sets up your value system, and that 1901 constitution didn't see me as equal." And so, I think it's really important for us to use that symbol as a catapult. To not only、um, change the wording, but to change the hearts and minds. Some of us know it as Eight Mile Wall, Burwood Wall, or the Wailing Wall, but some of us don't know it at all, unaware that it was built to keep black and white communities separated. A major artifact of segregation, right in our backyard. In tonight's Two Americas, Seven Action News reporter Amira David introduces us to the Bright Wall that has a dark history. Between Burwood and Mendota, beneath the rooftops and behind the trees, is a wall with a story. Doesn't mean much to the average passerby. I'm glad I lived this long to see it. Still standing tall. 
but to the people born and raised in this eight mile and Wyoming community, this is Burwood Wall, a piece of segregation still standing. The wall was constructed back in 1941 by a real estate developer. Six feet high and about a half a mile long, it had one purpose, to separate black and white communities. The story goes that 80 years ago, a developer set out on a mission to construct an all-white housing development. The problem was that this area that we're standing on was um, denoted as red on the city survey maps that were created during the 1930s. Red signified uh, hazardous, dangerous, as an investment. Because of how close it was to an adjacent black neighborhood, the Federal Housing Administration was reluctant to insure bank loans for the new homes, so the developer pitched an idea, build a wall of separation. It's just a remarkable, remarkable um, artifact of segregation. Gerald Van Dusen, the author behind the book, Bringing the Wall's Dark History to Light. Are a lot of people surprised to hear about this, to learn that something like this exists in a city like Detroit. To my knowledge, this is the only segregation artifact in the North. Fred White is 91, but remembers watching the cement trucks as a nine-year-old boy. What did you know about the other side? Did you know there were some rules? That was called the white sub. We had no business down that way unless we was going to the store. Hop the wall in the 1940s and you'd face the wrath of police. You'd be harassed and um, you heard a lot of the N-word. But by the time Teresa Moon moved to the neighborhood in 1959, white flight was taking root, black families were moving in, and the wall's purpose had begun to wane. The Mendota kids lived over there and the Mendota kids would hop the wall and come to the park. Today, you'll see sections of the wall transformed with images of justice and equality. The mural helps it to kind of take away from the connotation of it being a segregation wall. But painting over the wall hasn't quite erased the painful past, nor the reality that a physical barrier isn't needed to know segregation, though not enforced by law, does still exist. A recent study shows the Detroit metro area is considered one of the most segregated in the country. And it's important that we acknowledge that it existed in the past, but it continues. Do you think you'll see a different Detroit in your lifetime? I'm hoping that that happens, you know, because I don't intend on going anywhere. I love Detroit. I love my community. I don't intend on leaving, so I hope it changes. I'm Amira David, 7 Action News. Thank you, Amira. We're told Burwood Wall will remain standing. Last year, it was added to the National Register of Historic Places, and the preservation of the wall will be commemorated by those still living in the community this summer. By moving north and by concerning itself with equality in housing and employment, the civil rights movement began to encounter increased resistance, the so-called white backlash. During these marches, King and other demonstrators were struck by bricks and bottles. 
Tonika Lewis Johnson uses her art to show how racism and discriminatory housing practices have hurt black families in Chicago. Her latest installation, called Inequity for Sale in Englewood, is direct and bold. WBEZ's Natalie Moore met up with her and has the story. Johnson and I meet up on a Friday afternoon, unfazed by the snow crunching below our feet or the cold biting our fingertips. We're facing a boarded-up, faded, white frame home with brown wood trim. Johnson installed a circular marker in the lawn. She reads the black text on the yellow circle. This home at 7250 South Green was legally stolen from black resident John Garner on December 28, 1962, in a widespread land sale contract scam. This crime was never brought to justice. Reparations are due. And this is really plain spoken language. <laughs> Thanks. <to this> book. <laughs> I asked her to read the other side of the marker. This house was sold on a land sale contract, a legally binding contract disguised as a traditional mortgage that enforced excessive monthly payments to the speculator without an actual transfer of ownership. Contract buying affected black families in Chicago during the 1950s and 60s. With few options to finance homes due to redlining and segregation, thousands of black families bought homes on contracts. They faced inflated prices, higher interest rates, and the threat of eviction for even one missed payment. But they earned no equity during the length of the contract. Many invested in the homes for years and came away with nothing. In 2019, a report by researchers from Duke University and the University of Illinois Chicago calculated the plunder of black wealth that contract buying inflicted. Black families here lost between three and four billion dollars because of contract buying. If I hadn't seen those documents, it wouldn't have made me as emotionally connected to what this house represents. Decades have passed and the contract buyers are long gone. But Johnson can still hear the whispers of their agony. She can still feel their pain. The legacy of the predatory practice remains. For Johnson, the blighted homes and vacant lots on this block are signs of the devastation wrought by contract buying. I really wanted to demonstrate the point that you know, this, this discriminatory practice from the 50s and 60s is literally financially affecting the homeowners who are here today. Like, their, the value of their homes is lower because it's right next to abandoned homes and vacant lots that were really created, you know, because of this. 168 of those contract homes were in Inglewood. Two of Johnson's markers went up, 15 in total will be up this summer. This public art connects legalized theft of the past to the present-day wealth gap and disinvestment in black communities. These crimes have never been brought to justice. Johnson is known for her folded map photography project. It paired black Chicagoans from the city's south side with white counterparts who share the same house number and street but on the city's north side. 
folded map sparked conversations around segregation, but she wanted more artistically. I started to understand limitations of photography with some of the issues that I wanted to like deliver and present to the public. And I knew that photography wasn't going to encapsulate all of the little nuances of um, large systemic issues that I wanted to present to the public. So that's why I like the built environment and really making a connection between um, people having that personal experience with the built environment and accessing this historic information in a way that's more emotional, you know, um, and immersive um, has kind of made me push photography aside just for now a little bit, just a little bit. Now Johnson is contemplating buying these vacant properties and transforming them into community spaces. I want to do my part, if possible, with the support of people who are interested in this project to like acquire some of the homes, renovate them, and see if that can help some of the, the appreciation of some of the homes. Because that's really what the neighborhood and the people who live on blocks like this, this is, that's what they need. Looking at this frame brick house, what would you want it to transform into if someone said, yes. we want to hear your vision and we're going to make it happen, money's not an object? Oh, well, definitely it would be an art house. It would be a house that has um, uh, exhibition space and it would also be an opening floor plan for people to be able to rent out for um, barbecues or baby showers or graduation parties as well as have um, an office that's accessible for people to you know access the internet print stuff but but really just a community a art community gathering space I, I would want a collection of them to be like satellite art houses. The following week after we met up, the owner of the other vacant property with the marker removed the sign. Of course, the removal irritated Johnson, but she emailed me that the truth of the matter is how the owners of abandoned and neglected homes acquire that property is the consequence of what her sign aims to educate them and the larger community about. Johnson says her project is uncomfortable for someone who inexpensively acquires a home that's not their primary residence and fails to maintain that property in a neighborhood already struggling with blight. She adds that these new owners are perpetuating the racist systemic issue that has plagued the community for decades. And a reckoning, no matter how uncomfortable, is needed. Natalie Moore, WBEZ News. Now it doesn't matter now. It really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning, and as we got started on the plane, there were six of us. The pilot said over the public address system, we are sorry for the delay. But we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane. And to be sure that all of the bags were checked, and to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane, we had to check out everything carefully. And we've had the plane protected and guarded all night. 
And then I got into Memphis. And some began to say the threats. I talk about the threats that were out. Bomb threats have rocked dozens of historically black colleges and universities in recent weeks. That includes Nashville's Fisk University, which was also targeted during the civil rights movement. As WPLN's Samantha Max reports, the schools can now apply for federal funding to ramp up security and mental health resources. Fisk, Howard, Spellman, these are just a few of the more than 30 HBCUs that have received bomb threats this year, many during Black History Month. Fisk had to evacuate and lock down its campus one day last month. Since then, the university has stationed more security officers outside dorms, installed dozens of additional surveillance cameras, and increased police patrols outside of campus. But the added safety measures at Fisk and other schools haven't completely eased students' minds. Kylie Burke is the student president at Howard University. She testified before Congress last week that the threats have caused stress and paranoia. Howard and many other HBCUs also made the important decision to provide mental health days following the threat as well, acknowledging the weight of anxiety felt on campus after students were repeatedly woken up with safety alerts, sometimes as late as 2 and 3 a.m. in the morning, constantly leaving us on edge and feeling as if the next threat was all but imminent. The threat at Fisk echoes one more than 60 years ago when the university's gym was evacuated before a speech by Martin Luther King Jr. That happened just one day after the civil rights attorney Z. Alexander Luby's home was bombed. The FBI believes most of the recent threats have come from a group of juveniles who were racially motivated. Samantha Max, WPLN News. Tyson and Regina Bates have dreamed of turning the dilapidated Torrance Lytle High into a private school for underserved children. The school dates back to 1937 and was the first to serve local black school children until it closed in 1966. The Bates say they presented their plans in 2016 and made two offers, but were denied both times without explanation. Meanwhile, they allege the commission quoted lower prices to prospective white buyers. Their attorney, Faith Fox of the Cochrane Law Firm, also says the Bates were asked to submit more information than necessary during negotiations. Tax documents, uh, payroll stubs, uh, personal information on their housing. Um, in addition to the fact that they've been asked to provide 3D renderings of what they intend to do with the property and told by the commission uh, leadership that they were out of their league. And this was a very lofty goal for people like them. The couple is still trying to purchase the property. A county spokesperson and former commission chair Dan Morrill declined to comment. For WFAE News, I'm Nick Delacanal. A terrible thing to waste. Environmental racism and its assault on the American mind. Written by Harriet A. Washington. New tonight, an unusual substance has one metro neighborhood on alert. CW50's Chris Walker has more. Neighbors on Benetol Street say a Stellantis plant that stands right behind their homes is emitting strong odors that's causing them to feel lightheaded and sick. And now they're calling on Eagle to step in and stand up for residents. I would like to report the smell of paint coming from the Stellantis Mac facility.
dizziness, burning eyes, and throat pain. Those are some of the symptoms families in East Canfield Village say they experience after being outside too long. And I'm breathing all this stuff. I want to be sitting out on my porch. I want to be enjoying my backyard. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I'm already uh, a surviving cancer patient. Look, I'm on a bag and all this. You know, so I already got health issues. Yeah. Robert Shope has lived on Beneteau for 25 years, and over the last 12 months, he says the Stellantis Jeep plant behind his house is more than just a nuisance, but a health hazard. There are people who have moved away from here, and I can't speak for everyone, but I do know a lot of people that don't bring their children and grandchildren around anymore. My grandchildren don't visit me. It's rare. Residents say the odor is raising concerns about air quality. They won't do that in the suburbs. Right. So why would you come into the city? Yeah. Just because we don't have as, the same kind of median income as they would out in Sterling Heights or wherever. Shobe is one of five residents filing a civil rights complaint against the Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy. The complaint claims Eagle racially discriminated against a low-income majority black neighborhood by approving an emissions permit to Stellantis. For them to lower emissions and warn to raise them here in a predominantly black neighborhood and even to allow this permit over here with all the conditions that were already in place without any consideration is, you know, it's against our civil rights, I'm sure. In response to resident complaints, Eagle officials sent the following statement, quote, State regulators have escalated enforcement against Atlantis for violations related to odors and for not installing equipment properly. Eagle has partnered with the state health department and the U.S. EPA to conduct air sampling and have posted results at michigan.gov slash Eagle has and will continue to investigate complaints. We understand the frustration of residents and are committed to assisting them in resolving their concerns, end quote. Reporting in Detroit, Chris Walker, CW15, News at 10. Don't you know if you let people walk over you now, they'll be walking over you for the rest of your life. Look at me. You think I'm going to spend the rest of my life in this slop house? Watch it, Goldie. No, sir. I'm going to make something of myself. I'm going to night school, and one day I'm going to be somebody. That's right. He's going to be mayor. Yeah, I'm going Mayor. Now that's a good idea. I could run for mayor. A colored mayor, that'll be the day. You wait and see, Mr. Carruthers. I will be mayor. I'll be the most powerful man in Hill Valley, and I'm going to clean up this town. Milwaukee residents will have a chance to participate in a historic mayoral election on April 5th. There is no incumbent on the ballot for the first time since 2004. Bob Donovan, a self-described conservative who served for years as a common council member, is facing acting Mayor Cavalier Johnson. If Johnson wins, he'll be the city's first elected black mayor. Corrine Hess has more. Johnson and Donovan were the top vote-getters in a seven-way February primary. Johnson came out on top with nearly 42% of the vote. Donovan got 22%. Only about a quarter of registered voters went to the polls in February, and now... In the weeks leading up to the general election, enthusiasm for the race hasn't seemed to increase. At the Blue Kangaroo Laundromat on Milwaukee's south side, most of the customers are unaware there is a mayor's race going on. For those who did know, many like Celio Palacio say the outcome doesn't matter much. And I always like to read uh, the platform of each one of the candidates. And most of the times, uh, it just doesn't work. Blue Kangaroo is in Bob Donovan's district, but Cavalier Johnson got 44% here, compared to Donovan's 39%. John Johnson is a research fellow at Marquette University Law School who has watched the race closely. 
He says despite the serious challenges the city is facing, he isn't expecting a high turnout on April 5th. The mayoral election will be the only thing on the April ballot in most parts of Milwaukee. Turnout goes up quite a lot in the general election for mayor, but that also coincides with the presidential preference vote and often contested statewide elections for Wisconsin Supreme Court. Donovan has made crime his number one priority in the race. He's calling for more police officers and tougher penalties for criminals. We have individuals in Milwaukee who behave badly, who behave in uh, criminal ways that are getting away with it because they feel there are no consequences for their actions. Kevlar Johnson wants to bring back about 200 police officers that were cut in previous city budgets. Both candidates' call for more cops hasn't resonated with everyone. For the first time since its inception, political advocacy group Black Leaders Organizing Communities isn't endorsing a candidate. The group's political director, Kyle Johnson, says neither contender is good for black people. We know after 2020, after however many past years, we know Cops in the black community, the way the current system is set up, is not it's not working. Cavalier Johnson says he understands where the group is coming from, but residents want police protection. Still, he says police are only part of the solution to the city's public safety problems. And so when I talk about public safety, uh, I talk about it in a holistic way that includes police, yes, but uh, it also includes positive reforms to the department. It also includes prevention. It also includes mental health. Back at the Blue Kangaroo, Carla Fiera is looking for stabilization in her neighborhood. She has worked at the laundromat for three years and lives nearby. I have been seeing too much difference between, you know, other neighborhoods than here in this community. It needs a lot of help. The business community feels the same. Tim Sheehy heads the Milwaukee Chamber. He says people across the city want the same things safety, prosperity, and educational opportunities. And I think that that fundamentally covers uh, every resident in the city of Milwaukee, whether they're here doing business, whether they're playing, whether they're living here, or whether they're passing through. Sheehy says the election of a new mayor is exciting because it doesn't happen very often in Milwaukee. In the last 60 years, there have been four mayors, no matter how it turns out. It's a chance to look at the city's challenges in a new way. Corrine Hess, Wisconsin Public Radio. Once again, police being up on people. Back up right here. Back up and get on that step, okay? Back up. All he did was break up a fight. And this is what happens for breaking up a fight. This is a disgrace. There's a test in this city, and we intend to keep the pressure on. Let's continue to show this nation who we are. Continue to show this country who we are. Have you ever used your phone to record an encounter with a police officer on the street? If so, we're inviting you to call in and describe that moment. Mayor Adams this week warned New Yorkers that recording police encounters from too close a distance will not be tolerated. Now, to be fair to the mayor, getting too close was his specific point, but his language inflamed activists interested in police oversight when he made it sound like he's critical of recording police encounters at all. For instance, 
If an officer is on the ground wrestling with someone that has a gun, they should not have to worry about someone standing over them with a camera. And the mayor seemed to suggest if you see a police encounter, you want to monitor, never mind if you can't afford this, you might start by going to an Apple store. If an officer is trying to prevent a dispute from taking place and de-escalate that dispute, they shouldn't have someone standing over their shoulders with a camera in their face, yelling and screaming out there at them without even realizing what the encounter is all about. There's a proper way to police and there's a proper way to document. If your iPhone can't catch that picture, would you being at a safe distance that you need to upgrade your iPhone? Stop being on top of my police officers while they're carrying out their jobs. That is not acceptable and it won't be tolerated. All right, Mayor Adams there at this week's rollout of those controversial new neighborhood safety teams, not in full dress NYPD uniforms. We'll talk about that too. And with us for this is Spectrum News New York One public safety correspondent, Dean Meminger. Dean, thanks for coming on for this. Welcome back to WNYC. Oh, thanks for having me. Seems like you have a hot show on this Friday, Brian. (laughs) We'll have some good stuff, I hope. Did the mayor bring this up out of the blue, Dean, his issues with recording police encounters, or has this been part of his public safety campaign for a while? No, actually, uh, most of what you heard him say, and he said it forcefully, it was actually a question from me that I asked him about this because he was at the police academy earlier this week uh, rolling out his new uh, neighborhood safety teams to get guns off the street. And at one point he mentioned, you know, it's not going to be acceptable. Uh, Your videos are not going to change what we're doing. We have to get out here and get these guns away. We're not going to let politics lead this. So at the end of the news conference, I did ask him, I said, well, are you saying people shouldn't be videotaping police interactions because those videos are important to see what cops are doing? And sometimes what criminals are doing, people document it and you can use it. And that's when he responded in this forceful way about, you know, don't be on top of my officers, back up, you know, get yourself a new cell phone. Well, without civilians recording police encounters, we wouldn't know what really happened to George Floyd. We wouldn't know what happened to Eric Garner. There are so many examples. Did the mayor at least acknowledge the value of cell phone recordings of police encounters to police accountability in the 21st century? He definitely did. Um, He did not say do not record police, but he said back up. Don't be on top of them. And when I spoke to activists, uh, advocates and civil rights groups, Uh, They all said it wasn't what he said, but how he said it. It, He said it's okay to document, but back up. They think once he speaks that forcefully saying, I support the cops, don't be on top of them. If you're out there, you know, on Flatbush Avenue or on 34th Street and you're documenting cops videotaping them, the cops may now have the attitude, well, the mayor said for you to back up. I'm going to tell you to back up and go across the street. Now that's when people are saying, that's the problem. Now you're going to tell us we really can't videotape because you want us to go across the street when buses are blocking the scene. Right. Well, the mayor suggested in the first clip we played that civilians recording police encounters can put the officer or other members of the public, by implication, Mm -hmm. in danger. Have there been examples of that that you're aware of? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, there are plenty of videos. I mean, he, he he's right on one hand and what he's trying to say, like you shouldn't be on top of the police officers because there's uh, a scuffle going on or maybe somebody has a gun. They're trying to make an arrest. Um, so you shouldn't be that close. But the issue is we have seen in the past where people are there yelling and screaming, sometimes grabbing at the police officers. I know there's one video out of the Bronx and there were so many videos during the pandemic of this. Uh, they were trying to arrest someone and people were recording and you could hear them kind of encouraging the person to break free and get away. And they were, you know, yelling at the cops that they were punks and all of this, but they, they were very close to the police officers. So I think that's some of what he is talking about. You know, don't be that close. Don't get involved. Uh, but once again, we all must remember, as you, you have pointed out, there are a number of cases and not only Eric Garner. I, and I told everybody this, no one in the world, no media outlet, no newspaper would have covered Eric Garner without that video. They would have right. said, you know, this was a big black man. He was selling cigarettes. He resisted. Unfortunately, he died. We would have never looked at that story. That's just being very honest. The video that his friend took, the guy on the street, that allowed us to see what happened because that was before cops were even wearing body-worn cameras. We, we have some people calling in with stories of times that they've recorded police encounters with civilians. We'll take some of those calls in a minute. But we also have some tweets coming in with questions from people still trying to understand what the mayor was saying and what he meant. And listeners, if you're just joining us, my guest is New York One public safety correspondent Dean Memager, who asked Mayor Adams that question uh, earlier this week that resulted in the mayor's controversial statement about it not being tolerated if members of the public get too close to police officers videotaping encounters. So one tweet from a listener says, my question is, what does the mayor mean by won't be tolerated? Uh, and and certainly, Dean, that sounds, frankly, like a threat. Yeah, and, and, and that's what, you know, I, I spoke to Jose LaSalle. He's actually, you know, one of the originators of Cop Watch Patrol. He's been walking around videotaping cop actions for more than a decade, Brian. He actually, he's been wearing a body-worn camera before the police had them. And he said, you know, he, he was very concerned about that because he's been arrested for recording police. And he says, clearly, the mayor is using language that's intimidating to individuals. The average person may be afraid now to pull out their camera when the mayor says it won't be tolerated. We're not going to stand for this. Now, the mayor's not saying don't videotape, but once again, you know, the people who follow this are saying that's a message to police that it's okay to tell people to back up, even if you're 15 feet away and not intervening or bothering the officers. They may feel like they still can tell you to back up because they feel threatened by you. And, you know, no one should be trying to threaten police. Uh, but if you see something disturbing, we know you should uh, document it. So once again, I want to be clear because on even my, my Twitter and Instagram at Dean Memminger, uh, you know, people are saying the mayor didn't say this. The mayor didn't say that. He did not say you can't record, but he did say back up. Right. Well, What's the law in that regard? I would think recording an armed agent of the government interacting with the public would in most cases be a constitutional right. But is there a distance limit or 
any specific limit to the right to record written into law that you know of? Not that I know of. And I did ask people who, you know, are professionals in this field and lawyers. No, you're right. It is your constitutional right to record in public. Uh, it's a part of city and state law that you can videotape police officers. But there is no rule. There's no law that there is a specific amount of feet that you need to stand back. Five, 10, 15. It does not say that. Um, but the advocates who are out on the street, they say, you know, give the officers their space. They think 10 feet is a fair distance. That's still pretty close, but they think it's a fair distance. One thing, they say you're, you're not in the middle, but two, for people who really want to document, it doesn't allow police. We've seen police slap cameras out of people's hands. So they say if you stand 10 feet away, they cannot do that. And if they do, your phone will show them coming to you. You're not approaching them, but they're coming to you to tell you to back up. But 10 to 15 feet, that seems like a fair distance. If they ask you to move back, maybe you can, you know, maybe another five feet uh, so you can document it. But if you go across the street and I'm a person on New York one that we have video cameras trying to document stuff all the time. And people tell us uh, police tell us rather, you know, go across the street, go up the block. Well, obviously, if you go up the block, you can't see anything. And that's the problem that people have. What? What? Mr. DNA, where did you come from? From your blood. Just one drop of your blood contains billions of strands of DNA, the building blocks of life. Let's talk about DNA evidence for identifying people who committed crimes, exonerating those who didn't, and a new lawsuit against the NYPD. The Innocence Project says it has used DNA hundreds of times to win the freedom of people wrongly convicted of crimes. The first such exoneration was in 1989. Before that, the technology to identify DNA matches didn't exist. The Central Park Five were exonerated in the famous New York City rape case after someone else's DNA was confirmed to be a match for the sample collected from the victim's socks. But consider this example of someone being cleared in a case that may come with illegal strings attached. A car full of people are arrested when police find an illegal gun on one of them. Police give one of those arrested a cup of water as they question her, then take the cup and, without her knowledge, take her DNA sample from where she held the cup. The DNA shows she did not personally handle the illegal weapon, and she is released. Good that she's cleared by DNA evidence, but then... What happens to the sample? Well, according to this new lawsuit filed by the Legal Aid Society, the city has kept that DNA sample on file with the woman's name ever since they took that cup of water from her three years ago. And that should be seen as a violation of the Fourth Amendment, which protects against unreasonable search and seizure. Apparently, the NYPD has tens of thousands of DNA files on record, and the Legal Aid Society says that unreasonably puts so many innocent people, mostly New Yorkers of color, at risk of becoming permanent suspects whenever a crime is committed and the DNA database is scanned. We'll talk to two representatives of the plaintiffs in this new lawsuit now. Phil DeGrunge, supervising attorney with Legal Aid's Criminal Defense Practice Special Litigation Unit, and Dave Pollack, staff attorney with Legal Aid's DNA unit. Dave and Phil, thanks very much for joining us. Welcome to WNYC. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Brian. 
and I'll let you two decide who's got the expertise to answer which questions. But the example I just gave of the woman in the car where an illegal gun was found um, was highlighted in the New York Times story and the Gothamist stories on your lawsuit. So what's the role of that case in the class action suit that you filed? Put it into context for us. Yeah, so that's the uh, example of Shakira Leslie, a named plaintiff in our lawsuit who's uh, seeking to represent not only herself, but a class of people who've been in this exact same position where their DNA was taken from them secretly by the NYPD, where they're you know brought into an interrogation room, given some object to either drink or consume, and then they're handcuffed and escorted out of the room and the NYPD returns and then takes that evidence, uh, puts it in an evidence bag and then sends it over to the medical examiner's office to have their DNA extracted, analyzed, and then indexed. And what's most problematic is that, you know, in Ms. Leslie's case, she was cleared of any involvement of, of possessing that weapon, but they kept her DNA and then they put it in this index called the suspect index, where it's now compared to crime scene evidence in the past and any new crime scene evidence that gets uploaded to this uh, uh, other database. Effectively, what it does is it makes uh, Ms. Leslie a permanent suspect in all crimes involving DNA. Despite there being no connection for, with her to those crimes, she's constantly having her DNA profile compared to crime scene evidence to see if there's a match. And for our listeners to tell the players without a scorecard, uh, that was Phil, right? Phil DeGrange answering that question. Um, That's right. That's Phil DeGrange. And Dave Pollack, staff attorney with Legal Aid's DNA unit. Let me throw the follow-up to you. Another example cited by the Times and Gothamist that I guess they got from you is of a 12-year-old. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, that was um, a young man who was suspected of a crime. He was given a McDonald's soda um, and uh, drank from the soda during um, interrogation by the police. Um, after he left the room, um, the, same, uh, the same playbook was used by the NYPD. Straw was taken and put into an evidence bag. It was sent to the OCME. Um, and it was placed in the suspect index where it was compared to tens of thousands of crime scene samples from around the city, despite having you know, no connection between the 12-year-old boy and all of these other uh, you know, crime scene uh, samples. Um, you know, it took, took the family once they found out, you know, our clients don't know at the time that these DNA samples are taken, uh, that they're being kept, uh, that they're even being taken, much less stored in this uh, index forever. Um, and it took, uh, it took that boy... Um, I think a couple of years to not only realize that his DNA had been taken in store, but to uh, to get it out of the index. Now, a supporter of this database or a listener who's only hearing about this whole thing for the first time might say, this sounds like a neutral tool that would help police to implicate the guilty and exonerate the innocent. If you didn't commit a crime where you left your DNA, then you have nothing to fear from your DNA sample on file. How would you respond to that, either of you? Well, well, the, you know, the, the NYPD isn't asking all New Yorkers, all you know, 8.5 million New Yorkers to provide them their DNA so that they could be able to solve any unsolved crime. What they're doing here is they're targeting primarily black and, and, uh, uh, and, and brown folks uh, who, who they suspect of crimes and, and effectively turning those you know, groups into permanent suspects in, 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 these, uh, in these cases. And, you know, of course, the NYPD has means that are at their disposal where they can solve crimes, but those means have to be lawful. You know, there are boundaries on what the government can do for a reason. The government 
can just simply go into everyone's home and, and search it at a whim simply because doing so may make it easier for them to, to find a, a suspect or, or solve a crime. But they these are all people who are at least arrested, right? Uh, no, I mean, th- this happens to uh, people who are persons of interest in a potential crime. Uh-huh. This happens to people who are suspects. And so the NYPD brings them in for questioning, but then ultimately decides maybe there's not no, no basis to make an arrest. And this also happens to people who are uh, actually arrested, but they don't have any uh, uh, they don't have enough basis to actually you know get a warrant or, or, or and get their their DNA. And of course, this happens to children as young as 11 years old. So the 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 gamut of people that this can happen to is, is really large. And, and this you know, can really implicate any New Yorker. But unfortunately, what we've been seeing is it's primarily black, black and, and brown folks who've been the, 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 the parties harmed by, by this practice. And, and you know, if, if the NYPD tried to enlarge it and say all New Yorkers have to do this, I think by tomorrow the, the whole practice would, would be shut down. Uh, uh, I don't think New Yorkers would, would want to just hand over their genetic material to the government and say, do with it what you wish. Yeah, uh, but unfortunately, they've been able to, to do this in secrecy because uh, they're, they're targeting people, not letting them know that they're taking their DNA. And they're primarily uh, doing this to, to black and brown folks. Because that tends to have contact with the police. But when you say people were were harmed, is your concern for abuse just theoretical or do you have any plaintiffs in your class action suit who say because their DNA was stored after an encounter with police, they later became victims of the criminal justice system in some material way. Right, Brian, that's a great question. It's really not as simple as saying, well, I'm not involved in criminal activities, so I shouldn't have anything to worry about, you know, about an index, a suspect index like this. There's a significant potential for errors to occur and for individuals in the database to suffer as a result of being involved in the criminal justice system. Uh, one example of a way that can happen is lab contamination. Um, a Queens man recently was wrongfully arrested and lost his job because of a laboratory error by the medical examiner that resulted in an erroneous database hit. That error was only detected because he had an airtight alibi. He was in New Jersey at the time, and that prompted the OCME to examine its testing records and realize that a mistake, a contamination mistake had been made. Um, but you know there were serious consequences for, for him. Um, another example is something that we call DNA transfer, the simple fact that we all leave our DNA behind in every place that we visit, every store, every coffee shop, every subway train. Um, Terrell Gills was a legal aid client who was implicated in a robbery at a Dunkin' Donuts store by a database hit. He was wrongfully arrested and jailed for a year and a half, and he was prosecuted based solely on that DNA match. But as we later found out, uh, it was clear that he had not committed any crime. Um, He was uh, cleared of any wrongdoing. And his DNA was detected at the scene only because he was a regular customer at that Dunkin' Donuts. And unbeknownst to him, he had left his, his DNA behind at the store. Um, so there's a real risk here to people who are in the database. It's not theoretical at all. Do I understand correctly that the state of New York has a policy limiting DNA storage to people who have been convicted of crimes, but the city policy allows long-term storage on file for those who are merely arrested? Phil, is that right? Uh, this is Dave, Brian. Um, I can okay, speak to sorry. that. Yes, sure. and not at all. Um, that's, that's absolutely correct. The state legislature established the state DNA database in 1994 um, and um, has, has directed that only people with certain convictions um, be added to the state database. There's a whole regulated process for that. Um, and the process of being added to that database and the searches that uh, are occurring in that database are closely regulated. None of that is true of this local city database. Um, you know, the, the, 
decision to add someone to the database is um, uh, the local database is purely at the discretion of the NYPD and the medical examiner, um, and there's no regulation uh, or oversight over the local the local suspect index or the database. So, is part of your lawsuit asking for the state standard to apply to the city? They can't store. DNA samples from people who are convicted of crimes, but not anything less than that? Well, the state standard already exists for the state index. So there, the, the, the legislature's already created a, an entire framework for this index and, and said that this, is, this should be the index for the state of New York. What the city has done is they've just done an end run around this, this law and say we're going to create one regardless of whether or not the, law, the legislature's authorized us to do so. And, and now it, it, without, without that authorization, there's lack of regulation and all the kind of harms that come with it. So what we're asking for is that, this, the, that the court hold that this uh, index is unlawful and, and can no longer persist. And, uh, and that people's DNA who was unlawfully taken in this manner where, you know, secretly without their knowledge, without their consent or, or warrant, that it be purged from this index. And to the extent that the city officials want to compare, you know, DNA profiles at, at crime scenes to to uh, someone who's been convicted, you know, there's already an index for that, and and they can they can do that. But mm -hmm. what they're doing here is is something completely unregulated and, and unlawful. Also, some people are calling this a stealth database because, like the woman given a cup of water or the twelve year old given a soda from McDonald's by police, they don't know those cups are being used to collect their DNA. Are you suing to stop that or just the long-term storage of the file? Yes, we are suing to stop that. And that's why this is a class action lawsuit, because there are potentially hundreds of thousands of individuals who have had no idea that their DNA may be in this index. If you've been brought into an interrogation room and you've been offered a cup of water, there's a, a, a potential that your DNA may be in this index without your knowledge. And, and, and of course, obviously without your consent. So the, uh, the large scope of people who, who are implicated here that just don't know about it is, is, is really uh, numbering in the thousands. And, and as a result, we, we need a class action to effectively represent them all and ensure that their rights are, are, are being protected here. Uh, you know, in the past, there have been individual lawsuits where one person's brought a, a case like this 12-year-old to get their DNA removed. But that's because his lawyers found out that his DNA was in this index and informed him, and then so they brought this case. This lawsuit is seeking to effectively end this practice writ large for everyone uh, and, 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 and change it uh, once and for all. What standard would you set then for when DNA of a suspect could be collected? Well, the same standard that, that exists in any other uh, context where the NYPD wants to get access to you know, private information, that they'd have to get a warrant or court order or ask the person's consent. Uh, in, in this context, you know, you know, you know, for example, and if they want to get access to your cell phone and, and look through your your phone book, your your call log history, they have to get a warrant to, to do so. If they want to go inside your home uh, to, to search to see if there's anything there that may implicate you in, in, in a criminal case, they have to get a warrant to do so. But here, your basic private genetic material, the NYPD is effectively accepted from this legal framework where they would normally have to get a warrant. And have said that they're just simply going to take it without your knowledge and without the consent and without ever going through the process of getting a warrant. And, and that's incredibly problematic because th there's lots of people who are being swept in this database that have absolutely no reason to be there to, to begin with. Uh, uh, and, 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 and it's also, again, as we mentioned, uh, completely unregulated. So, uh, it, to, you know, if, if we're successful with this lawsuit, the NYPD can still be able to solve crimes uh, uh, as they do in every other context by just, you know, getting a warrant, getting a court order when they have a basis to suspect someone. But if they don't have the basis, if they don't have any real evidence, they can't just take people's DNA without their knowledge, 
uh, or without their consent. Attorneys Phil DeGrange and Dave Pollack, two of those involved in the new legal aid lawsuit against the NYPD on how they take people's DNA samples without their knowledge and then store them for a long, long time, turning a lot of New Yorkers into permanent suspects and disparately uh, by race, as it turns out. Until the philosophy which old one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned everywhere is war it's a war 2.21 p.m. Tuesday, March 22, Prince William and Kate, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, touched down at Kingston's Norman Manley International Airport for their three-day visit to Jamaica. It's part of a Caribbean tour to celebrate the 70th anniversary of the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. Jamaica Defense Force soldiers, regal in their ceremonial attire, forming a god of honor to welcome the couple. Then there were the usual meet and greet on the tarmac. But miles away outside the gates of the British High Commission in New Kingston, protesters demanding an apology for slavery presided over by the British. The Queen has been in office for 70 years and there's no indication that she plans to apologize. There's no indication that these European people plan to pay us reparations. And I want to tell you something, if we don't get up and demand it, we will never get it. We are here, proud of the people, and we want to show them that, listen man, they must do what is right and right the wrongs of history, giving us full independence, not this partial thing that the Queen is still seen as the head of state. No way. That is the type of government we have, no democracy. If they had democracy, they would never invite the representatives of the Queen of England to be here because the sentiment of the people at this time is that we want to get rid of the Queen of England, not to entrench her. I'm here to demand that the royals apologize, acknowledge the atrocities that happened over 300 years, acknowledge that when Jamaica began independence in 62, we began the highly involved. All of this to me is an opportunity for government, to opposition to come together and make a drive for Jamaica to become a Republican country. It won't solve every problem, but it's the beginning of a way to actually shift how we see ourselves and chart our own path. Protest aside, first stop for the royals, a courtesy call on Governor General Sir Patrick Allen, the Queen's representative in Jamaica. Then they were off to Trenchdown, the home of reggae legend Bob Marley. Anxious children among the hundreds who turned out to get a glimpse at royalty. Last stop on day one of the royal visit, the Trenchdown Culture Yard and another chance to send a message to the royals. Well, we understand it's a burden for him. When poor fathers have messed up, you understand? But if he was here earlier on, the rest of the man was chanting a chance. Eh? One perfect love. You understand? Because the love that need to be on board now with all Ray Ray. 
you know, I mean, the Psalm said, forgive so that you can be forgiven. I remember years ago, man used to burn the queen and burn, and you know, you know, Rastaman used to burn things. No, over that now. Rastaman was sitting and reasoning. For your messed up, are you willing to say sorry? Simple as that, you know. But the Duke and Duchess were moving to a different beat. Damian Mitchell for the Gleaner Online. How does humanity develop? How does it improve? How does racism, if it can, recede despite the overwhelming power of history? Well, I think, I think that the, the, what's difficult to understand is how it's kept going, how it has stayed so firm for centuries. I mean, we've seen improvements in the way people think about um, gay Americans, for example. And I think that had to do with understanding that this could happen in your own family. You can actually have a gay son or a gay daughter, and, and these people were people, as you understand people to be. But because white Americans can keep themselves separate from black Americans, there is a sense that this other will never be who I am. So if there is a way to get people to understand, I don't know, I don't know, I can't answer that question. I don't know, you know, um, Robin Kelly says that we're gonna need a surrealist moment. There's gonna have to be something that breaks the continuum. Because until white women start giving birth to black babies, I think we are going to stay living in these incommensurable experiences. The COVID-19 pandemic has altered the cultural landscape in many ways, including postponing the premieres of many theatrical presentations. One is acclaimed author Claudia Rankin's new play entitled Help, a personal examination of white privilege through abstract staging and choreography. After a prolonged COVID shutdown, Help opens this week in New York City. NewsHour Weekend's Zachary Green sat down with Rankin in 2020 and again recently to discuss the play and how events over the last two years have affected her and her work. You've joined us in our liminal space. A space neither here nor there, a space full of imaginative possibilities, a space we move through on our way to other places. And I want to tell you how I came to have brief conversations with white men. In March of 2020, poet and author Claudia Rankin's play, Help, was about to open at the Shedd Performance Center in New York City. It's based on a New York Times piece about conversations she had while traveling. He said he loved airplanes. No phones, no news. Can't stand the news. It's nonstop these days. You shouldn't have voted for him. I didn't give it a thought. <laughs> Rankin says that she got the idea for the piece after the 2016 election, in which 62% of white male voters helped sweep Donald Trump into the White House. She believed that many of them were driven to vote for Trump because of racial resentment. She says that resentment is also the reason why many white conservatives favor slashing social spending. You never know who they're letting into first class these days. There is a perception among white people that people of color are taking things from them, taking spaces in universities, taking their tax dollars. 
when in fact many of the programs that began in this country began to help white people. And it wasn't until after the 1960s and Civil Rights Bill that the conception changed and the notion was that, oh, now black people are taking those things, so we will vote against our, our own best interest. Help dramatizes Rankin's experiences as a black woman interacting with white men, as well as their ubiquity in positions of power in the U.S. That's the majority of the Senate, the majority of the Supreme Court. That's just a boardroom. It's just a police force. It's the founding fathers. It's an insurance company. It's a line of surgeons, a line of historians, a line of bankers. I think what white people don't think about is the fact that I, as Claudia Rankin, a black woman, could work as hard as you do. But the minute somebody knows that I'm black, they'll put aside my resume. They'll decide that I don't fit into the culture of the company that is peopled by white people. Their structure has a door open for you so that you can step through it and work hard. That same structure has to think twice about whether or not I should be let into that room. When I'm talking about privilege, I'm talking about that door. Our conversation with Rankin took place just before her play's first preview. Four days later, the pandemic shut down New York's theaters. Two years to the day since our first interview with her, we sat down with Rankin again to discuss The Shed's remounting of her play and how the events of the last two years have changed it. We saw a number of high-profile deaths of black people, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Dante Wright, among others. What has it been like for you to bear witness to all of these deaths and the, the response afterward? I want to start by saying all of that had been happening, but it hadn't been happening with us sitting in front of the television in our homes where we got to see it day in and day out and follow the news incredibly closely. And the accumulation was devastating. In the latest version of Help, Rankin includes the January 6th insurrection, dramatizing it with video of the events of that day and relating it to her themes of privileges, rights, and who has power. January 6th became the thing that had to be incorporated into the script. And I think it's so important as a historical moment that I don't want to get it wrong. <laughs> I don't want um, the audience to be able to say, that's not what they said, that's not what they meant. How does what happened on January 6th relate to what the play is really examining? Well, white privilege, in as much as it's tied to American democracy, because if people were privileged but it, and were not also in control of the government, and also in control of my possibilities as an American citizen, i.e. my voting rights, all of that, then it wouldn't matter so much. Then we would just talk about class differences. But because um, white dominance is tied to institutional power, it's really important for us to mark these things because the ramifications will shift our possibilities, my possibility and your possibility. Um, and you might not see it, but I will feel it first. I think you will feel it eventually, but um, I will feel it first. 
I think this country was built on gangs. Mm -hmm. You know, I think this country still is run on gangs. Republicans, Democrats, the police department, the FBI, the CIA, those are gangs. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? The correctional officers. Mm -hmm. I had a correctional officer tell me straight up, we the biggest gang in New York State. Straight up. More than 40 L.A. County Sheriff's deputies are members of gang-like cliques within the department. That's according to the L.A. County Inspector General Max Huntsman. He said so in a letter he sent to Sheriff Alex Villanueva this week. Huntsman didn't name names, but he says he's compiled this list of deputies from the Sheriff Department's own investigations. He says the deputies belong to two groups operating out of two stations, the Banditos in East L.A. and the Executioners in Compton. And Inspector General Max Huntsman joins me now. Welcome. Uh, good afternoon, Madeline. Well, we've been hearing for years about these deputy gangs, but you say you've ID'd 41 sheriff's deputies who are members of these two gangs, but you didn't name them in this letter. Do you know who they are? Yes. Uh, I didn't identify them. The sheriff's department identified them. They conducted two internal affairs investigations into these groups and identified 41 people who appear to be members, and we're charged in the inspector general's office under state law in investigating such uh, evidence, and so we've asked the sheriff's department to cooperate as the sheriff is duty-bound to do so, and instead uh, he has said that I'm corrupt and and he won't give me anything. He won't talk to you? He won't uh, testify? He won't give you documents? That's what you're saying? All these things have happened. He's been told in court he has to respond to subpoenas. He won't testify. He won't uh, provide documents. We have up on our website, people want to go look at it. We've been giving them letters as long as he's been the sheriff requesting information uh, regarding the fraud in Compton, regarding the cover-up of uh, photos being taken at the Kobe Bryant crash scene, a variety of allegations of corruption in the sheriff's department, and all of them have been stonewalled, including this one. Well, let me just read a statement he posted on Facebook. He says, once again, we have received unproven allegations alleging deputy gangs by Inspector General Max Gustav Huntsman. We have read the letter from Mr. Huntsman and is as is consistent with his unhealthy obsession to attack the department. He has failed to provide any actual evidence or new information. Um, how do you respond to that? Well, it, it, it's a political attack with no purpose. The letter we sent him said, You've identified some people. We need to investigate them. Please send us the evidence. It didn't. I didn't allege anything other than that they have evidence uh, that suggests these groups are gangs under the new California uh, legal definition. It's our duty. We're a law enforcement agency just like they are. Uh, we just have a, a more narrow focus, which is constitutional behavior by the police. Uh, and so we are trying to do our duty. And instead of um, them supporting us, as you would think they would want to do, uh, to provide uh, public confidence in the police, uh, the, the attacks continue. What is the definition of gang? Because that very word has been a point of contention with the sheriff. In fact, he issued a cease and desist letter last month uh, to the uh, department, the Board of Supervisors, actually, demanding that they stop calling them gangs, these deputy groups. Yeah. So, so. Why is it, why are you calling them gangs, and, and what's the definition? Uh, I'm not. The, the California state law calls them gangs. Mm -hmm. It has a definition that's been effective as of January 1st, and under that definition, some gang-like conduct that's been identified, such as but the Jump Out Boys, uh, who were fired by the Sheriff's Department, the Vikings, who were found to be a white supremacist organization under by a federal judge years ago, 
the 2,000 and 3,000 boys who had a big brawl. Um, and now it appears the banditos, uh, based on the brawl at East L.A., the executioners, not a name they use, but ones given to them who have a, a Nazi helmet tattooed on their thigh. All these groups appear to have engaged in conduct that violates that new California law. And that's what we need to investigate to find out who their members are, to be fair to the members, to find out what they thought they were joining, uh, what they're involved in, and uh, to make sure that to the extent that it's inconsistent with um, upholding the Constitution and discharging their legal duties, that we put a stop to it. So in your letter, you identified two gangs, the Banditos out of East L.A. and the Executioners out of Compton, out of those two stations. But there are more, right, allegedly? Yeah, I, those two are, I don't say they're gangs, they are possibly gangs. They, uh-huh. The Banditos engaged in a, um, a beatdown of other deputies that is the subject of a report on our website as well, which sure looks gang-like. And over the years, there have been many allegations against them, which have been found to be true, uh, which appear gang-like. So you might well uh, conclude they're a gang, but we have to collect evidence in order to present it to the state for the state to make a determination uh, under the new rules regarding uh, certification or decertification of police officers. So it's not a question of what people have heard of. We've heard of lots of stuff over the years, but we have to collect evidence. The executioners, as I say, they have a Nazi helmet as part of their tattoo. It's hard to believe that such a group would not be perceived as discriminating based on race. Um, and it appears that both those groups are, are um, do not contain any significant number, possibly zero African Americans or women. And that's a problem under the California law, under federal law as well. How is this affecting their interactions with the larger community? I think it absolutely destroys the credibility of the sheriff's department uh, across the board for the the larger community to see uh, these kinds of groups protected, to see the information about them not provided in discovery as required by the Constitution. Even if the sheriff's story about how they're just kind of cute uh, high school hijinks of of, um, hazing gone wrong, he likes to call it, they would be destroying the credibility of the department. And and we have information that we have to investigate that their conduct has been much worse, uh, including things like withholding backup from from deputies who uh, are not in compliance with their idea of how they ought to behave. So it's, it's really destructive. And then, of course, to see a law enforcement agency attacking a public official for trying to determine whether or not there's corruption inside that agency, which is a repeat of what happened under Baca and Tanaka, and the federal uh, government had to get involved. For the public to see that kind of conduct, I think, is incredibly destructive and, uh, and destructive of public safety in general. Now, he says he has taken action, that he has fired a couple of sheriff's deputies in the, in the Compton station. He's transferred 13 or so others, and he has prohibited sheriff's deputies from joining groups that commit misconduct, uh, quote unquote. When a person places five cards in front of you on the table face down and says they're all aces, and you ask them if you can turn one or two of them over and they say no, you shouldn't believe what they tell you. Uh, Okay. Um, so So you don't think that he's taking any substantive action? I think the substantive action, the attacks on me and my staff uh, that, that violate p- penal code and, and civil codes about what he's supposed to be doing to allow us to, to verify or, or disprove, those are so destructive that any other transfer he might have done of somebody pales in comparison to the message he's sending to his staff that it's uh, a green light on the, on the Office of Inspector General and anybody else who, who looks at them funny. 
that message is much more destructive than anything else he could be doing behind the scenes. And so the first step is he has to come into compliance with the law regarding oversight. And then we can look at the evidence as to whether or not what he's telling you is true. So this has been going on for a long, long time. A report from Loyola Law School released last year details 50 years of these uh, quote-unquote deputy gangs, and they identified 18 different groups over the years. Some are still around. So how do you dismantle something that is so seemingly entrenched? Well, first you need the will. And as you can see, the Sheriff's Department does not have the will, but that's why the state has passed a law to have an external uh, process. The Civilian Oversight Commission is going to conduct a process of looking into it. I'm going to conduct an investigation in which we identify individuals because it's the secrecy of these groups that has caused half of the damage they've caused. So we're going to identify people. We're going to make sure the Sheriff's Department complies with its constitutional obligations in criminal cases. We're going to make sure that they comply with their um, constitutional obligations again, as, as to the public and as to their own deputies. And when we're done with that, we've shown a light upon uh, the gangs. I'm hoping that they will fade away, but I can't tell you in advance whether or not we'll be successful. All right. Max Huntsman, Inspector General at the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Research shows that homes owned by people of color in the U.S. are often overvalued when they're being taxed and undervalued when they're being sold. Now a Pittsburgh artist, along with a local museum, have found a way to highlight the disparities. Bill O'Driscoll of member station WESA reports. Five years ago, Chester Stoney bought a two-bedroom house on a quiet street on Pittsburgh's north side. He got it for a good price, just under $20,000. Still, Stoney quickly learned the place needed work. I got the water turned on, and water was coming down the, in the ceiling in the kitchen. So I had to, you know, shut off the main valve, and uh, I actually repaired it myself, you know, to save a little bit. Then last year, out of the blue, an artist reached out to Stoney to inform him the property taxes on his house were too high. So he he did his research on my property and uh, found that I was one of the black residents that was being essentially overtaxed. The artist, Harrison Kinane Smith, had a proposition. As part of his latest art project, the nearby Mattress Factory Museum would take out a $10,000 mortgage on one of its buildings. Then, for the next 15 years, the museum would hand Stoney the difference between what he should be paying in property taxes and what he is paying, an extra $475 a year. Smith researched local property taxes and sales prices with a data analyst. He says the disparity in Stoney's tax burden mirrors Pittsburgh's as a whole. There's a 7% difference over the last 10 years in property taxation rates for black homes and white homes. Smith, a Pittsburgh native, says it's not an issue just for those homeowners. The property taxes are the primary source of government revenue. And so, you know, in all, in whether or not you're being individually overtaxed, we as Pittsburghers are benefiting, complicit in, and these systems touch all of us in many different kind of pernicious ways. Smith's exhibit is titled Sed Valorum, Latin for without value. The show also includes an experiment involving a different local black homeowner. 
Smith commissioned two appraisals of her house. The first was conducted with the homeowner and her personal furnishings, including family photos and Senegalese masks. The second had a white person pose as the homeowner, with all decor that might read as black removed. The result? The quote-unquote white version was appraised at $436,000, 9% higher than the black-identified original. Megan Confer-Hammond heads Pittsburgh's Fair Housing Partnership. She says such appraisal inequities are widespread. We're removing black wealth through our systems, and not due to any action by an individual, but due to the systemic racism that is giving a black individual a different and lower rate than a white individual for the same house. It's rare for art to be so data-driven. In the museum gallery, the visual focus is a stack of the black homeowner's possessions, most in cardboard boxes under a clear plastic tarp. Mattress Factory Executive Director Haley Haldeman describes Smith as a practical visionary. He is someone who is operating both as an artist, but drawing from really, really nuanced and complex concepts of law and data analysis and property tax, wading through them in a way that makes them understandable to the vast array of visitors who are coming to the mattress factory. Homeowner Chester Stoney hopes Smith's art helps others, too. And it would be great if, you know, we find a way to bring it out, you know, to the city at large. That would make this art exhibit one that literally hits home. For NPR News, I'm Bill O'Driscoll in Pittsburgh. Anyone is ignorant about white supremacy racism, it is for sure black people, victims of racism. The cows, Gus T. Renegade, and for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, March 26, 2022. So I have been told. This is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, counter racist suggestions, questions, and or observations. The number 720 716 seven three hundred decode five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate the number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred decode five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. few things to share before we get to the callers. I guess number one, reading is more important than watching television. Uh, so the Cows Book Club, I'm much happier about the book club now that we're done with The Man in the High Castle. The reason I was disgruntled when we were reading that is because we had so many people pick it and then no one participated. Uh, We finished that. Now we moved on. New book, uh, which is fascinating. And we have participation. Always grand. But wow, the Cows Book Club is really informing, motivating the programs that will happen over the next week. Uh, Just let's see on Wednesday. This will be our ode to having victims of racism on the program for a while. Dr. Gerald Horn will be back with us. I believe this is his third time being a guest on the program. Uh, We will discuss his book, Race War, which is phenomenal. One of the best that I have ever read. 
we're having him on the program to discuss this book, which is one of uh, the older books that Dr. Horn has written. He's written so many, literally dozens. We read The Man in the High Castle. Towards the end, one of the main characters uh, is called Tojo, Asian male. White people practicing racism. Watch it, Tojo. I said, man, who is Tojo? What is T-O-J-O? What is that? Tojo, Tojo. Retired firefighter, World War II buff. Said, oh, that's one of the generals. He's executed after World War II. Japan, you know, said he was responsible for the attack in uh, Pearl Harbor and all. I said, what? Wow, my goodness. And then I go research, check Dr. Horn's book. In fact, I checked the index. Tojo is in the index. I said, oh, I should have read Race War a long time ago, which I was supposed to do, so I felt so guilty. So he will be on the program uh, to help grasp the white supremacy racism aspect from the perspective of Japan, why they got involved in the war uh, and even I guess the thought now are the Japanese these so called Asians, are they honorary whites? Is that how this is all working in the system of white supremacy racism? Really? Black it back and everybody else is cool? Hmm amazing book I would encourage folks to read it very very informative just the travels alone just to read the beginning where he talks about the research that went into race war wow scholar Dr. Gerald Horn and that's what a the metaphor swan song final time to have a non-white person as a guest on the program Dr. Gerald Horn unless we can get Anthony Broadwater Anthony Broadwater Daryl Howard if we could get them on the program anything that can be done to make that happen but other than that white guests only now in this same coming week we are currently reading dear senator Essie Mae Washington Williams her memoir uh, about Strom Thurmond former governor and US senator down in South Carolina we're reading her memoir uh, Strom Thurmond raped Mrs. Essie May's mother, Carrie Butler, when she was 15. That's the book that we're currently reading. She mentions a kind of pivotal moment in her life, uh, the year 1938, where she finds out, oh, the person that I thought was my mom is not my mom. What does Dr. Weldon say? The joke is on the offspring. <laughs> and that fellow, that black guy that you thought was your dad, nope, it's a racist white man. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah. So in the midst of all this, or actually before all of this begins, she finds out about Zachariah Walker. Who is Zachariah Walker? There's a whole book about the lynching of Zachariah Walker in Coatesville, Pennsylvania, which is very close to Philadelphia. Don't even hear about lynchings that far north very often, much less in the 20th century. But Zachariah Walker, 1911, happened. She talks about, you know, learning who he was. This was how Gus T. learned about Zachariah Walker. There's so many lynchings, so many black people die, so many black males. Who can count them all? I go to the library to discover or to get the book uh, on Zachariah Walker that they have at the University of Washington Library. Go get it. I'm reminded like, wow, this is the whole genesis of the cows. Literally, the University of Washington Library and just re, uh, researching white supremacy, racism, uh, that further evidence go to any major university library and start looking for resources on racism 
and then tell me that you think white people are ignorant about racism unless you think white people constructed the University of Washington. The Seattle campus alone, I believe, has between 15 and 20 libraries. I'm just talking about the University of Washington. Unless you think they put all that information, which includes multiple copies of Urugu, Dr. Marimba Ani Hardback, Dr. Welsing, the ISIS papers, Iceman inheritance, psychopathic racial personalities and other essays, 2000 seasons, run through what we've had on the cows, color monitors, run through the books that we've read, talked about on the cows, see how many of them they don't have at the University of Washington, just the Seattle campus. That's the genesis of it. Literally, that's where Gus T and back of the bus met the University of Washington Library. Literally. Anywho, so I go to get this here book on Zachariah Walker, the lynching of Zachariah Walker. In the process of going to get that book, I talked about it. They have a whole section on the lynching of Negras in the U.S. I take pictures. I posted them online. I start going through and looking because I didn't, you know, come looking for all this extra stuff. So I start looking at some of these titles. Oh, my gosh. What? 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 In the midst of that, one of the books that I found at the altar of lynching. Dr. Matthews will be a guest on the program a week from tomorrow. I believe that's Sunday, April 3. Just because I wanted to go and learn about Zachariah Walker, the book we're reading in the book club. And then what do you find? That's that, that happens, at least for me, that happens all the time. You go to the library looking for one book and you end up getting 20. Reading more important than watching television. I can even tell you a little bit, Dr. Matthews, so his book uh, about the lynch. Oh, my God, everybody should read this book. Everybody should read this book because this is about the lynching of Sam Hose. I didn't know. I never heard that name before. Didn't know who he was. If that if that had been like the question on Jeopardy or what have you for a million dollars, Gus T, who spent 13 years researching racism and white supremacy and all that. Sam Hose, who is give me all day or unless I had my computer if I had to just do it no resources e wouldn't even have a guess black rapist <laughs> I think that's about all I could do that would be close like get partial anyway uh, get a partial I would get a partial that's all you have to do any black ma- even if it was Dr. King black rapist you probably at least get partial credit anywho you do know Sam Hose if you have seen any of those lynching photographs if you've seen uh, Without Sanctuary, the book, I think that's a white man, James, James Allen, or the exhibit based on that book. Or if you've done any looking at lynching photographs, you've probably seen the lynching photographs of Sam Hose. Like, I just flipped at a glance. Oh, I've seen this. Everybody should know Sam. Like, as soon as you see, if you Google the name Sam Hose. And the lynching comes up immediately. You're like, oh, yes. Dr. Matthew's book, he at the beginning, 
he says that John, this is a white man, John Hope Franklin told him to make sure he talks about his grandfather at the beginning. What happened to this white man's grandfather? Apparently, white people in Oklahoma were upset with black people. Uh, they wanted to go and lynch these black people. Apparently, Dr. Matthews' grandfather, white man, did not hand over these black people so that they could be lynched. Now, I think he says explicitly in the book, like, whoa, whoa, don't be thinking that my grandparents were not about racism. Slow down. They just weren't going to hand over these black people to be killed who hadn't really done anything. And I think it was a black family. The white people, and he did have firearms. So the white people said, oh, you're not going to give us the Negro. Okay. They leave. They wait until this white man accompanies his wife to church. They think everything has died down and they want to go pay their respects to white Jesus for guiding them through all of this. This book, again, is called At the Altar of Lynching. At church, the race soldiers grab his father. They take him out to a designated area, beat him to death, they think leave him for dead it just so happens that he survives you know what they called him this one I would get like psh, I got it can you Gus T can you tell me what they called this white man <laughs> like oh man I got it you don't even need to give me three seconds nigger lover ding ding home run every time nigger lover once again you cannot be white and be ignorant about racism white supremacy because sometimes what happens they drag you out of church in front of your family and beat you to death that's so called being ignorant about racism white supremacy Dr. Matthews the other now this white man wow White people in their ball games. So I email him, and I believe this white man is in his 90s. So like wowzers for Sunday. So I email him. He writes me back and he says, "Oh yeah, we do the program, no problem. This is important work. Sam Hose, blah blah blah, working on something else." I think he said. In fact, he says we need to do the program after 10 a.m. Eastern, before 4 p.m. Eastern. six hour window that's one two our program airs at 8 p.m. Eastern and the NCAA basketball tournament is in progress I think they might be playing games right now the so-called elite eight as they call it lots of black males running around white men throwing chairs smacking them around all that he said it has to be at a time when the UNC Tar Heels, Mike Jordan, and the Duke Blue Devils, Crystal Mangum, are not playing. That was a new one. We've been here 13 years plus now. That was a new one. I have never <laughs> contacted any guest white or non-white where they said flagrantly like oh wait a minute now before we even get down to this like you make sure you look at that schedule ball team can't be out on the floor 
Dr. Wells and white people in their ball games. So, because I did want to talk about Sam Hose, the altar of lynching on the Sabbath, no less. We will get down Sunday, April 3rd at the irregular time of 2 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Central, 11 a.m. Pacific. I really don't dig early morning shows. I guess that's not early morning, but it's still earlier than it should be. And I do not dig being outside of our normal time on the broadcast. But Sam Hose, we will chat it up with Dr. Matthews uh, early Sunday. And I guess it won't mess up anybody's NCAA tournament plans if you're watching the big game. If Duke and North Carolina advance to next weekend. So Dr. Gerald Horn will be first up on Wednesday, race war. And then Dr. Matthews Whiteman on Sunday afternoon, the Sabbath, the religion of when each chapter in the book starts with verses from the Bible. I think he even transcribed that as they are lynching and literally burning to a crisp Sam Hose that glory. The religion of white supremacy sam hose google sam hose anybody if you if we have any folks if you have the ability if you want to chime in google sam hose i shouldn't give them search sam hose you'll see what happened to him and then if folks, oh yeah i have seen this dang i should have known his name maybe even should read if it's not this book at the altar of lynching a book because i suspect a whole lot of folks you have seen what happened to sam hose we just didn't know his name blackmail privilege blackmail rapist of the day too uh let's see the cows 13 years listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the program is constructive visit the blog racism hyphen notes you can glance at my review of king richard love it uh and then the paypal button is in the top right corner beneath the button you'll see the links for paypal venmo cash app the cash app address cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows uh, enormous gratitude and I mean with all of the chaos and stress that people have been under the last two plus years now uh, with the pandemic uh, folks could have been you know investing in all kinds of things or just making sure that they have uh, enough of what they call a nest egg nickels euros whatever saved up uh, and folks to invest and make sure that the cows radio broadcast continues. Hopefully we are worthy of your time and energy and providing accurate information on what white supremacy racism is. What it means to be white. In fact, in the book at the altar of lynching, when he talks about the lynching of Sam Hose and black people in general he talks about not only this is the religion he just doesn't say the religion of white supremacy but I mean when the question that was asked when we just had Dr. J. Russell Hawkins on the program religion of white supremacy is that accurate ask the same question to Dr. Matthews and see what he says but he has a sentence in the book and he says hey this isn't a conflict when we say that black people are out praying and they're worshiping their religion to try to get rid of this. The other side, you got white people who should not be discounted. This is their religion. Get the gasoline. I'm taking this here nigger's testicles, Sam Hose. I got your testicles. Glory, amen. 
He said, don't discount that. That is their religion. In fact, he says, in fact, is this what it means to be white? No coincidences, buddy. And for Gus T to find that book, it's been less than 10 days since we had Dr. J. Russell Hawkins, his book, The Bible Told Them So. Woo. Right and exact. That Sunday, ask that question. Religion of white supremacy, is that accurate? 90-year-old white man, too, that we're talking to. He has seen some refinement of the system some different iterations uh let's see i'll get some of my notes and then we'll get to folks who dialed in number one i didn't play a report on it but be in toronto and others they noted that hampton university it may have been others but hampton university hbcu and virginia commonwealth uh, they announced that they were supporting refugees from Ukraine and offering them tuition and housing and all of that. They want to come get safety and all of that. They'll provide sanctuary. Bravo. No problem with offering assistance. However, I played the report about Fisk University, which is not in Virginia, but is next door in Tennessee. And they noted, hey, it's been dozens, more than 30 HBCUs across the country that have been targeted with these threats, bomb scares, as they call it. Hampton University is one of those institutions when they say, hey, we want to offer safety to these refugees who are in a war zone. HBCUs right now literally are in a war. I don't know what you call it when you have to cancel class. Get somebody up at two o'clock in the morning. I know you got an exam. I know you got a term paper. I know you think you were going to class in the morning. Thinking you're going to correct the problem with STEM, racism, white supremacy, but we got a bomb scare. That sounds like a war zone to me. If I was a student at Fisk, Morehouse, North Carolina A&T, Grambling, anywhere else, and I had to get out of bed at 2 o'clock in the morning because they had a bomb threat, I would be saying I'm in a war zone. I thought I was going to college and I am in a war zone. I'm not a revolutionary. That's what they said last week. I'm a victim of white supremacy, terrorism, and I'm in a war zone. I'm just pointing that out like, wow, like I don't. I think one of the cliches charity begins at home. I haven't even heard about arrests for all of these threats. When that problem has been corrected, then maybe I would be reaching out to offer assistance to people on the other side of the planet. But we have our own war zone right here that is still unresolved, not to mention funding and everything else that happens with HBCUs. Just my uh, view, victims guaranteed qualified. Uh, also, a correction yesterday. I didn't play this report today, but it will be on neutralizing workplace racism for next this coming Thursday. They did have a report talking about widespread shortages of educators, substitute teachers, everything that you need, custodial staff, staff, everything for schools across the U.S. Only the state of New Mexico. Uh, is reportedly employing the National Guard or has done so to some degree. That's not widespread. I thought that was a widespread thing, and it's only New Mexico where they've done this. Uh, so that was an error I wanted to make sure I corrected. But the shortages, 
that is widespread everywhere and bus drivers, as I said, everything that you can think about. And even it is uh, throughout the state of New Mexico where they talked about having National Guardsmen in the classroom and, you know, just lots to think about for attempted parents. We will hear that report in full this coming Thursday. Strive for accuracy. Uh, let's see. Things I'll touch on. Uh, one, Renithia Tate, she's been a guest on this program uh, repeatedly. She wanted to make sure that folks, she wrote the book Pieces of a Puzzle, talks about the incorrectness, uh, sexual activity, tragic arrangements, uh, specifically black females and white men. A lot of the data in her book, she's been here repeatedly. I wrote a review of her book as well on my blog. Her website, newly launched, is www.talksexsecrets.com www.talksexsecrets.com If you need the book or want to share, if you know other people who might benefit from this sort of information, there you go. www.talksexsecrets.com Renithia Tate, Pieces of a Puzzle. I know Pam would be uh, thrilled. She was such a big supporter of Miss Tate's work. Many of our listeners as well. Uh, let's see the segment we started with on Deshaun, Wap- uh, Deshaun Watson. I already gave it to Sam Hose, so he cannot be our black male rapist of the day. Sorry, Mr. Watson. I thought it was so important. They had Nick Wright, white male, suspected race soldier, very popular sports commentator. Um, he's saying, you know, I looked at all these accusations. I think, number one, he says Deshaun Watson benefited from the grotesque nature of the charges. I do not believe that for a moment. Do we remember... The Brentwood, hello. Folks who were with us when we read about O.J. Simpson, maybe you know about that on your own. The more tawdry, the better. I do not believe that racist man, racist woman in the journalism industry would look at charges. Oh, my God. Oh, that's just so lewd. Oh, I can't even discuss this in private company or in polite company. Oh. Oh, no, it would just be better for us to remain silent about this. Are you serious? Can you name other black males? Black male privilege? Is this what we're saying? Are there other black males who benefited from this privilege where the charges against them were so heinous they could not be mentioned? Incidentally, I've heard many, many people talking about Deshaun Watson for the past year that this saga has been uh, unfolding. And one of the things that they've said is that Deshaun Watson has steadfastly maintained his innocence throughout. One of the other things that was reported that even just this week, a second grand jury cleared him of all charges. I wanted to ask Nick Wright. I did on social media. You say you think you've concluded that Mr. Watson, he's done. He's guilty of some of these charges what he's been accused of doing what evidence do you have that two different grand juries have not seen or they looked at it and just didn't analyze the information properly for them to conclude no true bill your conclusion this nigger's guilty of something Break that down for me, Mr. Wright, and just, again, give me the evidence specifically, not your own opinion. Let's see. 
innocent until proven guilty. They don't even get an indictment. Black man privilege, I guess. Let's see. The section about... Oh, when they talked about Alabama, words are so important. When they talked about Alabama and in the Constitution about it being a commitment to white supremacy racism, I did insert the laughter there when they said that it was it was so ridiculous, the voter fraud, that they had more votes in support of the Constitution in some areas than they actually had residents. I inserted the laugh track there, but then it was followed. They had Steve Murray the director of the Alabama Department of Archives and History, he came right behind it and chuckled and said, (laughs) it is crazy to look at. No, it's not crazy. It's the exact definition that I give on the program that many white people will come and quibble and give caveats and all that. It's dedication, commitment, that's synonyms, to white supremacy racism. It's not crazy at all. Call it what it is. Don't minimize. That's another one of those chuckling. What's funny exactly? Anywho, the segment uh, on Detroit, I guess we had a couple, the segment where they talked about pollution in the Detroit area, the Salantis facility, and it was causing all these uh, health problems. They had a privileged black male who was outside. He was saying, man, I want to sit out on my porch. I live here. I you know, pay property taxes, probably. And for Detroit specifically, we talked about this. Renisha McBride and company getting taxed all this exorbitant amount of money for their house just like we heard at the end in Pittsburgh and then comes on a, whoa you all have been paying like quadruple the amount of taxes you were supposed to be paying oh you lost your home oh well deck anyway so they talked to some of these privileged black males he said man I pay property taxes here and I'm a property owner and I want to set out on my porch or my stoop and think about raping somebody and I can't even do that because I got all this contamination and pollution from this paint factory he said uh, I'm a cancer survivor he said I got this bag on me what was he talking about was he talking about a Whole Foods bag was he talking about his farmers market reusable bag no he was talking about a colostomy bag privileged black males isn't it that's what it is They had a report in the L.A. Times today. It was talking about black males and they were talking about how the two years over the pandemic, black males life expectancy has now dropped to just a smidge over 68. And I do mean a smidge like if you get to February of the year that you turn 68, like, wow, consider yourself way extra, extra lucky. I just said yesterday, like, I'm not old enough to have any memories from things that happened 60 years ago and I said it doesn't look like Gus T will get there it's dangerous being Gus T and then wow the life expectancy dropping e might not last that long black male privilege anywho cancer survivor colostomy brag and then the Salantis paint company all their pollution in your area right on for Joe Lewis Kwame Kilpatrick Detroit's best let's see I'll do two more so I'll pick out two that I definitely wanted to get a word in one Claudia Rankin that right there white guests only 
I posted when Joyner Luca was a guest on the program uh, back, I believe, 2014. Cowbell, he has one white parent, one non-white parent. And some people, I guess, went back and listened to that uh, broadcast. Said, wow. Whew. White guests only, Gus. Yes, yes, white guests only. Claudia Rankin, black female, victim of white supremacy. That audio segment is from like 2015 when she's talking about her book of poetry. I remember it was so it was so popular when President Trump, he was a candidate at the time, Trump, uh, when he was out on the campaign trail in 2016. He was at a campaign stop at the microphone at the podium and he had people behind him and there was a victim of racism, a black female, and she was reading Claudia Rankin's book of poetry. And people talked about that like, oh, my God goodness this is the most extraordinary moment and ooh, she's throwing so-called shade at him she's just totally blowing him off reading some old claudia franken ooh, mm, she showed him yeah what i remember is when claudia rankin did the interview that year and they were asking her what's it gonna take to replace white supremacy with justice they didn't say that but psh. and she says i don't know it's gonna take robin kelly says a surrealist moment we're going to need white women to start having black babies. What have I said for years? That's how we've been conditioned to think. Having sexual intercourse with white people is the only way this problem can be solved. And that just further shows how confused what a lie it is to say that black people, non-white people, are super informed about white supremacy, racism. Claudia Rankin, you don't know about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings? You don't know about Strom Thurmond and Carrie Butler. We've had this for centuries. You didn't hear about President Barack Obama. His white mother gave birth to him. And he still accused his white grandparents of being racist. That's in the book club, too. That's what I mean. We are not the experts. And that's that's another reason why it's white guests only that's another uh, illustration she writes poetry oh I detest poetry I detest poetry make it plain be specific about what we're talking about use logic and then they bring Claudia Rankin on victim of white supremacy who is most to blame even for her being confused about racism and thinking the only way we can solve this problem is for a black male to have sex with a white woman and get her pregnant. That's the only way that we can solve this problem. White people are to blame for that. Sidney Portier, the late, what state, what have they been talking about? Guess who's coming to dinner? Not bucking the preacher. Then they say she has her play. Help. I said, that is so plain. It's plantation on Gusky. I can put my chest out on that one. I say, that's not Neely Fuller Jr. That's Gus T. Plantational. That is so plantational. That's what we're going to name this work that's supposed to help, I guess, somebody, white people who are allegedly confused about racism, white supremacy. We'll call this help like the movie, the help. Where the Negro slaves got together and had fun making fried chicken. Appropriate laugh track there. And then they're going to have where do they have the help at the help? debuts at or it's not the don't need the article help debuts at the shed extra plantation like why not just put it at the slave quarters 
Make it plain. The shed might be a phenomenal facility. I've never visited it, but wow. The help, or excuse me, help, same thing, going to be opening up at the shed. Anywho, uh, I will save my uh, other comment. I had commentary about the uh, gang activities in Southern California, but I will get to that uh, as we get down the line and some of the other reports that were given as well. Uh, the number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, observations, that would be grand. Uh, make sure that everyone has at least one chance to share. Uh, if you know you're in a noisy environment, if you could get to a quieter area, that would be great. So we don't have to compete with a lot of unnecessary background noise. Uh, this is the one broadcast where I do request uh, if we could not use metaphors. Race soldiers are phenomenal. Uh, they frequently deliberately uh, will be very confounding with those analogies and comparisons. Uh, we had a number of them uh, this week. Uh, they said the report about the gang activity in Southern California, Kobe. Uh, they they described alleged beatdowns of deputies by some of these white gang members, race soldiers with a badge. The white sheriff described these as high school hijinks. That's what I mean about what we've been exposed to for years and how race soldiers, they know words so important metaphors and all of that high school high wait a minute I thought we were talking about enforcement officers we're not talking about 14 year olds do they hire 14 year olds in high school at the sheriff's office and give them a gun and a badge really they might not even have a driver's license if they're in high school that's what I mean about those metaphors change your whip like we're minimum we were talking about a deputy being physically assaulted that is not so-called high school hijinks or hazing i mean even hazing like hey when i hear them talk about florida a&m they talk about hazing as serious gang terroristic activity For this broadcast, if we can make it plain, be precise, exact with our word choice, I will give reminders about the metaphors. Uh, number again, 720-716-7300. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, if you have commentary to share. Line should be open. Proceed. Greetings, everyone. Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. First, I uh, would like to talk about uh, a uh, incident that took place, uh, from my understanding, probably about a hundred years ago in the state of Florida. Uh, as I describe it, it'd be quite familiar with you, with you and 
and most of the people on the line. Uh, Okoy, Florida, to be exact, it's not too far from Orlando, Florida. Uh, the, the report was sent to me uh, from a friend, uh, uh, and it's about, you know, what you know. People are sentimental about twenty-five years, fifty years, hundred years. In this case, this incident took place about a hundred years ago, and where. Uh, uh, white people, of course, practicing racism, white supremacy, literally uh, wiped out an entire area where non-white black people are staying, uh, and that's basically what took place. Uh, but this took place, as most of us know, uh, this, took, this type of incident took place uh, quite a bit. Uh, it can be over 100 times in this part of the world or more. Uh, we know about the Greenwood section of Tulsa, uh, Oklahoma, uh, and I actually was in the state of Oklahoma for four years in college, and no one ever even talked about it. Uh, Akoi, uh had a similar situation uh, to whereas uh, uh, there was the 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 incident, quote unquote that gave white people the excuse was uh, a black male who was organizing uh, black people to vote in the presidential election. And, uh, of course, there was a lot of resistance, and it ended up a situation to where as they came to the house to kill him, uh, he did return fire, uh, practicing uh, uh, self-defense, and uh, in turn, they literally uh, just started destroying non-white black people's uh, place of residence uh, and literally just wiped out the entire area of black people uh, for decades. Uh, I have a brother who actually has been staying there uh, for the – he's been there for about about maybe 15 years or so. Uh, for a long time, it was noted as a sundown town. Uh, but anyway, there was discussion amongst us this week on the subject. That's why I'm bringing it up. Uh, we just uh, met with the parents today, starting another DCS session, mentoring section. Uh, looking forward to it. Uh, to, uh, you know, share and work with uh, younger black males. Uh, it's it's a, a heck of activity to for parents to, uh, you know, basically allow others to work with their, their children. Uh, and uh, it's something that I, I think uh, that I'm something I'm supposed to be doing. I put it that way. Uh, Last but not least, uh, you probably heard about it, tragic event of a 14-year-old uh, getting killed on uh, one of these uh, quote-unquote amusement park rides. Uh, the, the story hasn't really fully came out yet. They're, they're investigating on it. Uh, the child uh, was exceptionally large. 
uh, larger than most adults, to tell you the truth. Uh, somehow the people at the park allowed him to get on this this uh, object. Uh, the first thing I would say about those type of uh, machines, they have no no logical purpose at all other than to frighten people. Somehow people uh, enjoy being frightened or have been conditioned in that way anyway to be to be enjoy being frightened. Uh, but anyway, uh, quite tragic. One thing, another reason why I'm bringing it up because I noticed in the report the father who was being interviewed kept emphasizing that this child was a straight A student. The only thing the news kept repeating over and over again is his prospects of being a football player. And uh, I, I can see a, 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 a division of that where the father was talking about, you know, he was a straight A student, quote unquote, good, good kid and a straight A student in school. Uh, there was something else, uh, that I wanted to, uh, talk about, uh, briefly. Uh, oh yes. Uh, there is a incident that took place not too far from one of the high schools that I coached at Miami Northwestern senior high where a, uh, black male was shot to death by the city of Miami, uh, law enforcement, uh, Right now is at the point where there's two different stories on what the police are reporting as opposed to what the family saw on film. Uh, and uh, that can be something that uh, would, would actually go viral later on as the, uh, as the uh, investigations and whatnot uh, uh, transpire, so stay tuned. And that's all I have to say. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, much obliged. Retired firefighter in Florida. Truthfully, I am a little bit surprised that uh, we even heard from retired firefighter today. I know they are doing uh, spring break out in Florida, and they said retired firefighter and, and the rest of the folks have been cutting such a fool that they had to put in emergency curfew and all that. So I thought he might be out, you know out on the beach and, and raising sane for uh, spring break since that has been a big to do and white supremacy racism has been talked about overtly all the time and, and lots of folks saying prominently there is no problem other than there are black people on the beach now we have to have curfews and emergency orders and all this uh, statements from public officials saying Miami is not a party town could have fooled me Miami is not 24-hour party city. Could have fooled me. Like, dang, I've been to Miami. I thought it was all about, hey, party time and Miami Vice. Did I? Maybe I got that confused. Anyway, you know, I started. I started to go go there, but I I remembered I forgot my man tan and and uh, had to come back. I couldn't find my my uh, my lotion, my uh, uh, sun sun lotion. You know, and so that's that. You know, I just had to turn it down. <laughs> See, see, I'm not good at making jokes, but anyway. <laughs> see, I thought he would be anyway. out there, Uncle yeah. Luke, cutting, cutting loose, cutting a fool for uh, springtime. But 
right on. Good to hear he's working with the young folks um, in like super seriousness. Uh, even though that is serious, that's racism, white supremacy there with uh, the beach uh, situation and enforcement officers yeah. and all that. Uh, with the accident at the amusement park, that sort in terms of being conditioned, like all of it, his uh, attempted father saying this is a, an honor roll student using his brain computer to do something constructive. Could have been a brain surgeon, anything. He says, oh, he was a little football player. You know, he already had brain damage. Not that big a deal. Uh, he said, hey, this doesn't serve a logical purpose. Like, we don't need this sort of ride. This is not going to help us solve any problems. Really, nothing that's in this. Right. I remembered when they were talking about, I talked to uh, Cal's investors about this, when they were saying, oh, we can't have the Washington State Fair this year. and Oh, we can't have this. Who cares? Like, I'm good. Like, there's nothing at the fair that you need. Funnel cake, bumper cars, none of these goofy rides and things. Like, has the health inspector uh, checked out? Like, how many people's hands and what have you have been all over this funnel cake and whatever else? Elephant ears that you think you're going to eat at these places? And then he said, why am I all excited? Oh, we can go do the bumper cars. We go get on this crazy ride. Feel like we're dropping to the earth thrills plantational is not in the word guide thrilling is in the word guide if we have a free moment maybe later on in the program if anyone wants to look that one up that right there is a big part of white supremacy racism mr fuller very accurate thrills even doing something where it feels like i might die or be injured maybe even will die get injured occasionally Ooh, ooh, wasn't that scary Ooh. Things like that. Just one more, one more thing. I just want to say uh, real quick, things like that probably wouldn't exist in a system of white supremacy seeking those types of dangerous, useless thrills. Finish my thought. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, basically, uh, the, the child went along with a group. The father, the father, the, I, I don't I don't know what the, the child's uh, parental situation is but uh they allowed they allowed him to go along with this group now mind you now if i was one of those supervisors i'm talking about the retired firefighter version of me there is no way in the world i would allow that child to get on that that ride so because he he was six foot five 300 some odd pounds there is no way some a huge person of that of that statue, and I'm not necessarily talking about his weight, just just his height alone. I wouldn't have allowed him to go on that. He he probably would have been mad at me or whatever that sort of thing. But he wouldn't. I would have not. I would have told him you are not going to get on this ride. You know, and uh, but it, it's just tragic. That's the best word I can find for it right now tragic that this 14 year old is no longer living because of this stupid ride that he was allowed to get on. And, uh, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Mm, mm, mm. Disgraceful. Absolutely disgraceful. That's why I said so much to think about as an attempted parent and, Having to, you know, tell your child, your offspring, no to a lot of things because there's so many things in the system of white supremacy that are not constructive. Uh, And, you know, 
they're excited and everybody else is doing it and that probably will be true like yep they are eating a lot of non-constructive things doing a lot of non-constructive things brain damage all the rest of it but just trying to do the best that I can hopefully you will understand why these choices are being made they can be mad but at least they are safe that is uh yeah that's uh monumental tragedy man like something to think about just trying you know to stay as safe as we can say that all the time under very dangerous conditions even that gets encouraged right to go out and do things Uh, and they say we have talked about that with investors go out and do extreme things it can't just be let's oh let's go out we're in florida we could just go chill at the beach right we could go get a boat right lots of cool things that we could do in florida oh no no let's go do something where we could die even if we go to the beach, like, oh, we got to do speed racing and drag race. I know retired firefighters talked about the folks on the uh, four wheelers. Like, yes, let's go do some wheelies and all of that sort of system of white supremacy racism, encouraging all of this really unnecessarily dangerous, reckless activities. No value. That was what the uh, white fella said at the end there said I think that was the name of the installation that he was doing to draw attention to white supremacy racism and how they're overtaxing the black properties and then undervaluing them when it's time to sell for that segment on Pittsburgh where they said the house when it was with white owners was valued at approximately like $430,000 which was 9% more than it when it had the Negro art and all that in it 9% of that is approximately $38,000 so, I mean we're not talking about like a small amount of money and then when you multiply that across generations over and over and over and this is happening all over the world it is mind boggling like literally anything turn around and tell you you're lazy and you know all the rest of it uh, the number again 720-716-7300 decode 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate yikes it's in oregon that is amazing <laughs> talking about oregon before we get uh started today uh make sure i get some of my notes while folks are spectating and folks are just spectating they didn't have any comments here to share with so many different things that were in the news report i'll make sure that we wrap up early not to encourage uh spectating uh, make sure some of the other reports that I thought when they were talking about the segment on DNA in New York, that very widespread thing, not just for New York City, but that's specifically where they were talking about this at. Uh, number one, Do- Dorothy Roberts was a guest on the program repeatedly. We talked about her book, Fatal Invention. She talked about that in detail in the book. And when we were on the program, all of these different ways where enforcement agencies can collect your DNA and then just stockpile it so they can have it and you know have their little data their uh, crooks database that, oh, go through you know you got his DNA on database see if you committed this crime that sort of thing and disproportionately collecting DNA from black people and how do they get this DNA do you get stopped for a traffic ticket and now this has got to be some sort of swab to get your DNA like really two within that they talked about a 12 year old and it wasn't just, oh, hey, Bobby, you know, uh, we, we got a suspicion of a crime and they said it was a rapist and it could be a 12 year old. We just want to check your DNA, make sure it wasn't you. That's not what they did. They said they came in and, hey, Bobby, we got a soda. You're thirsty, aren't you? Here you go. 
And then they went, all right, snatch it, boom, put it in the Ziploc bag, bango. Like, for a 12-year-old? That's how the Central Park Five ended up being that. They can mention them and say, yeah, DNA did exonerate them. But, I mean, that was way after they had been convicted and served all this time and had people come out uh, sapphire, wild thing. And then, oh, yeah, DNA, yeah, they didn't do it. Oh, well, well, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry. And then Donald Trump complained about that. Like, what do you mean exonerating them? They probably would have raped somebody. Remember that, 2014? Anyway, all that with uh, the DNA, I would be super alert to that if you are in your area, what have you, because they weren't even giving questions on, well, how is this going to be collected? Remember, they said for the locales, up to local discretion. Maybe we go around and do some bamboozle 12-year-olds. That way we get your DNA on file early. 50 years from now, we'll still be running you through our crooks database to see if you did anything. And that's another one. My goodness. We talked about where they said, hey, getting your DNA is just like anything else. If they want to go through your phone, they want to go through your vehicle, they want to come to your house and rummage around, get a warrant. That is due process. Unlawful search and seizure, right? With the vehicle situation, that specifically, we've been out in public. Or we've had some people where they will say, hey, if you're a black person, you get stopped by enforcement officers. You can just say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm innocent. I don't have anything. Sure, officer, if you want to look around, feel free. And that is a horrible decision for about 8 billion reasons, one of which that I wasn't even thinking about. Like, my goodness, say you have a soda can. I mean, is your vehicle? Well, maybe it won't be a soda can. Say you have your uh, no plastic water container non-toxic in the vehicle and they snatch your water bottle or you have anything else it's your vehicle your property it's got your dna on oh sure well you know feel free look around officer you know have at it and they go in oh grab something maybe you see it maybe you don't now they got your dna in the database lots of reasons do not consent to searches of your person property vehicle residence DNA none of the above even if they come up if you don't have anything to hide we can just eliminate you as well, no I don't consent to any searches of my person property or certainly yielding any bodily fluids or any of my genetic material without a warrant I know you're just doing your job sir ma'am might be talking to one of the executioners remember do not let folks rummage through your property vehicle or any of the rest of it that is a horrible decision and again that is something that I have employed my uh, personally uh, and repeatedly safely every time make sure you're saying it without an attitude watch your tone as they say uh, in, in how you present uh, make sure other folks uh, nab our other hands as well get my other comment as well Mr. Fiumana. That's all we say folks are spectating because man I have about a billion different things to say from the different reports and even things that were not played. One thing I want to make sure I get make very clear in the numerous reports especially the reports that we started with at the beginning when they were talking about so called 
segregation in Alabama, or they did at least say white supremacy with the segment in Alabama and changing around the state constitution. The segment in Detroit where they talked about having this wall to separate white people from black people. All of that Claudia Rankin even used that separation and segregation. That's part of the reason why we're reading uh, Mrs. Miss Essie May's memoir right now. If we were separate, Thomas Jefferson would not have been raping Sally Hemings. If we were separate, Strom Thurmond would not have been raping Carrie Butler, 15 year old. This is not about separation, segregation, all of that. It promotes it's it's incorrect in terms of even describing the power dynamics of why these things continue to happen. This is not about physical distance per se. This is about domination. I'm sure we're talking Detroit. My goodness, Malcolm X knows something about that. This is not about separation. He talked about that. They come down to the Negro area and you want to do some vice, do some Strom Thurmond raping or whatever else. They know where the Negroes are. That's all over the world. This is not about separate. You couldn't have racism, white supremacy if there was separation. But how many times did that get said? throughout the news segments from beginning to end separation and separation and separation they'll point to little tacky symbols like that putting a wall I mean now how tall is this wall really how long is this wall how high is this wall do you have uh, you know officers with you know the gun barrel focused down we shoot anyone who comes within five feet of the wall get out of here again if white people and non-white people really were separate we would have way fewer problems may not even be a need for the cows anywho 720-716-7300 decode 564-943 pound star 61 folks who have commentary observations questions Uh, other folks with a hand up Have you heard? Caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, I only just have a few things to say. Uh, that's a good analysis of uh, terms like separation and segregation being used. I do notice that as well. Um, Those terms are used to prevent using more accurate terms like uh, white supremacy or the system of white supremacy. Um, And I was also thinking about that appraiser part because I'm uh, referring to the property appraiser site as well. and it, it also connects with gentrification and things like that. And I'm seeing white people in neighborhoods or residential areas where uh, maybe like 25 years ago, 20 years ago, it was um majority people who are classified as black. Uh, and that, that's an interesting segment as well. The difference in the, uh, the rates and charges. The next one is that like the the term gang now is being used. Um, 
I don't know if that was a, a white person that was speaking. Maybe uh, he was being questioned about, you know, like, hey, what do you mean by gang? And, like, can you define that? I, you know, I wanted to hear his definition. Or he might have been, it sounded like, referring to a particular, I guess, definition that was used in some kind of law or something that he was referring to. Um, I found that interesting as well. Uh, but he said that the, I guess these were law enforcement officers or deputies or someone, um, doing things that are gang like, and I noticed he used that term. He said they were acting in ways that were gang like, and I want to know what that is. Like, I don't know, you know, um, but I found that a, a interesting conversation and how white people are using language. And that it was that segment also where they were talking about how you can, how people use their phones to, uh, to record the interactions with police, law enforcement and citizens, um, or, you know, black, black people and how law enforcement and black people, uh, engage. And I guess the person, I think that was a black person made the comment about, um, there'll be consequences or something or, or something to that effect. And the person in the segment said that it sounded like he was using threatening language uh, or, or something to that effect. Like, Hey, what did he mean by that? Like, are you, is he going to, is he going to do something to us? And I could, I could tell that maybe people were thinking violence or something, but I guess that wasn't expounding on. Um, but uh, other than that, there's one last thing I wanted to share um, here locally. They had, okay, so violence, right? That's the, that's where I'm going on. It's, it's at least nine, I think nine white people, I think under the age of 30. Um, they were, I guess, like arrested or, or being taken to trial to court and the charges bear, bear, abuse like an animal and they even they even like they showed the video on the news and you, you can just it's it's just you know how you know destructive system of white supremacy destruction they're sicking a bunch of dogs onto you know onto a bear and they're recording it uh and they just show like a bunch of white mug shots white men and women okay um, engaged in doing this, but you know, they didn't want to really speak about it too much, but it, it was something that occurred some years ago that they just, uh, showed again up here in this area. Um, and other than that, thanks for the program. Uh, great audio segment. And that's all I have to share. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to go. I can sometimes you got to do it yourself. I don't know if you got to, but man, uh, now he, the segment he just gave on the bear. I hadn't seen that. I didn't hear that. Uh, I'm vegan plant-based. Um, I said that for years, you know, I, I, I say that all the time with white people when they wig out about, you know, we got to save the dolphins or the turtles or the manatees or whatever else it is. Um, if you would lay off the negras, I would be right there with you. 
I'm totally plant-based. We shouldn't be messing over the animals. Like I say that about the chickens. I'm not a nugget. Shouldn't be messing over the bears. Bears are amazing. They can climb they can climb trees faster than the average person can run. They are amazing. Super athletic. And they can kill you in about three seconds. But go out and sick dogs on a bear and laugh about it. Make videos about it. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> Wow. Now you put that right up with what retired firefighter said. Uh, the amusement park and all this. What is it? Thrills. Now I asked for that definition. I forgot. Bam. On the blog. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot.com directly from the word guide. Thrilling. Use this word to describe many of the things that racist man and racist woman do and or say use this word to also describe many of the things that racist man and racist woman use or race things that racist man and racist woman get other people to think do and or say also study the many ways that racist man and racist woman cause other people to think do and or say also study the ways that the many ways that racist man and racist woman cause their non-white people to be thrilled in all areas of people activity study the effects of the thrills that racist man and racist woman produce or promote among the non-white people study the ways that racist man and racist woman cause destructive speech and or action to have a thrilling effect on the ways that non-white people think, speak and act reason the white people of the known universe who have chosen to practice white supremacy have shown that they believe the practice of white supremacy to be the greatest thrill in the known universe racist man and racist woman have proven to be the greatest thrill makers in the known universe robbing killing terrorizing deceiving and promoting sexual conflict and confusion are some of the basic things that racist man and racist woman do and lead others to do in order to thrill and be thrilled now again retired firefighter with this young man dying young male at this event the amusement park and all these rides and such and then they got to put up dogs on a bear I just read a report this week they were talking about pit bulls British bulldogs excuse me British bulldogs they were saying that British bulldogs are so inbred they're talking about either no longer breeding this particular type of dog or changing that because they have all kinds of health problems and all the rest reminded me of albino affairs a little bit hmm. uh, but they said they're so inbred and everything that it's almost an act of cruelty to continue producing these dogs and they talked about what's the history of the British bulldog oh this is the dog they made for the thrill of fighting a bull 
What? What is that for? And I think the grandsister, didn't she talk about that bull metaphor? Like, why do they have all these things where it's some sort of violence against a bull? You got to breed a dog. And in fact, it's not even healthy inbreeding this dog just so that it can be violent. Go and attack this bull. Hmm. Thrilling. Anyway, uh, the other components from our caller in Florida about the gang. Now, I think they said from that report that was KCRW in California. Uh, they said that in California, I guess they have a legal definition for a gang. If you're going to have laws and go out and criminalize people and all that. So I guess they have the legal definition. I don't recall him saying this is what the California state legal definition of a gang is, at least according to the criminal code. I would have loved to have heard that. Like what? Let's hear it. <laughs> Let's see. Maybe cows listeners would count as a gang. I don't know. Let's hear it though. So we can be sure. I don't think he actually said it. And I think that became important because the announcer, when they were going back and forth and she said, well, you know, you, you said that they were a gang. And he said, I didn't say that they were a gang. I'm looking at the definition, the reports, these behaviors, this would qualify as what she was saying gang-like activity what he kept saying like hey you all are stonewall that was another metaphor you all are not giving us access to information if that's what stonewall means you're not cooperating with the investigation that can be a form of deception too uh so there could be that we got a gang here but we got to get evidence to confirm i guess then we can look at the definition look at the evidence and see now does this count as a gang according to the legal definition bing then we would say yes this is gang behavior or gang activity when they're going out and doing these beatdowns on a deputy but yeah I thought that was super important I would have liked to have heard the uh, definition the segment on the body cameras now that was across the country in New York uh, with former enforcement officer uh, Eric Adams black male victim of racism that I thought that in, that segment was important for so many reasons they've had so many reports in New York about rising crime rates and oh my goodness rising crime rising crime and gun violence and what are we going to do more police more police uh, and he didn't say this is one where I talk about specifics he said repeatedly Mayor Adams uh, that you're not going to be our officers they can't be wrestling with a suspect who has a gun and then have to worry about someone with a camera over their shoulder now that's when I said whoa what incident where that happened where an officer was grappling with a citizen suspect who had a firearm and he had someone over his shoulder with a camera recording. Tell me which incident that is. That's where I talk about metaphors again, like we got to be specific. And there were no specifics in that at all. He kept saying Mayor Adams consistently over the shoulder, over the shoulder. Are they literally over the shoulder? Really? The other component what is the exact distance? Now, they said there is no legally specified distance. OK, at least give me something. You should be a safe distance, uh, you know, something in the range of uh, if he said 10 to 15 feet. Give them a safe distance if they need more, depending on the context of the arrest and what's happening. They may need more space, but at least a good 10 to 15 feet so that you can be safe. They can be safe. The suspect, everybody, we want everybody to be safe. You can record, you can observe what's happening, make sure everything is happening in a just manner. That would have been great, but just over the shoulder. And you're not going to be over the shoulder. 
and they're tussling with a gun and you're over the shoulder. You need to be safe and back up and then just back up off my officers again. Now, what do you mean exactly? Nothing is precise at all. And when you have everything is that imprecise, that word with enforcement, discretion. And they talked about that in the segment. Now we can be, hey, back up off me. But we're across the street. Back up off me. We can't see anything. Back up off me. They said it could be described as threatening the way we talked. He said, we're not going to tolerate it. What does that mean? That's why I said it's no specifics. What does that mean? You're not going to tolerate it. What does that mean? Very. And I mean, you already knew that, right? Going out to do any filming of enforcement officers, Ramsey order. Certainly you can do a search. Can be dangerous filming enforcement officials. Uh, Let's see. Oh, I also forgot. Retired firefighter in Florida testing us here uh what have we been doing for our 13 years you can stand by your work he mentioned the okoye massacre i just had to go back to remember the guest's name paul ortiz uh not been that long ago he was with us i can just read directly from the description so dr ortiz what did he write he wrote the book emancipation betrayed the hidden history of black organizing and white violence in florida from reconstruction to the bloody election of 1920 Dr. Ortiz was awarded the Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore Book Prize. We talked about why that's significant on that broadcast. Gus discovered Professor Ortiz's work while reading Isabel Wilkerson's case, The Origins of Our Discontents. Wilkerson's references his the, the history of white terrorism against black people who attempted to vote. Specifically, Wilkerson cites Ortiz's research on the 1920 Okoye, Florida massacre where dozens of black people were murdered for attempting to vote. Talked about in depth way back November 10, 2020 days after the election. I don't even think they had a result yet at the time that we had this program back in 2020 November. And we talked about that Okoye massacre that retired firefighter mentioned. We talked about that in the book cased uh, as well. She does mention it, even though that book, second worst book I've ever read, it does mention the Okoye massacre. But what we've been doing here at the cows, uh, let's see, star six, one, if other folks have commentary, they would like to get in. Uh, let's see our caller. I guess you're on the Skype line or whatever it is. Uh, yeah, commentary. You should be with us as well. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, greetings, guys. Greetings, callers and listeners. Um, the um, segment with the race soldiers um, running around as a, as a, as a gang, um, harming people and mistreating people um, in that manner, that is um, not surprising <coughs> at all to be expected by people um, practicing so-called law enforcement. It reminds me of a, a clip I saw. I saw a white man dress in this um really really realistic um black mask almost um replicating a black person basically and i'm wondering i wonder how many race soldiers have um dressed up in this sort of um mask and drove around and hunted um black people you know and, and called it um you know chicago violence or so-called um black on black violence uh, i suspect these um things um could be occurring. 
and not just racial, just white supremacists in general could be using the, these this, these masks and whatnot. And um, the incident with the um, black male attempting to um, have fun and that ending um, fatal. Um, that that that's very 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 tragic and more motivation for us to um, not focus on um, being just fun, having fun. We need to be um, very, very serious. And everything, every time I see something like that, I just see that's motivation to um, remain serious and focus on the problem at hand, which is racist men and and, and racist women. Um, yeah, I, I'll be my life right now. Thanks for the broadcast and the excellent selection of um, news clippings. Much obliged. Uh, being serious, uh, Mr. Fuller says that that's one of my favorite uh, things that he said for years is in his book. Black people are very serious about things that are silly and silly about things that are serious. Hopefully we uh, work on changing that as we uh, proceed. Might even get that in as a sound clip uh, before we sign off for the evening. Uh, I did want to make sure I included as well um, just the segment about Chicago when they were talking about it was a black female victim of racism. She was talking about her uh, art project where she was making signs that talked about how black people's property was stolen in Chicago. Uh, and they were saying that some of the current white property owners, they would put the sign up for like a day and then took it down. Like, hey, I don't want this up in my house. <laughs> All that. Um, white people are not ignorant about any of that. She was saying like in uh, educating people and making them aware like uh, we had Beryl Satter white woman guest on the program uh, family property uh, we talked about her book she's not in the thing that I've said for years white people one reason of many white people are not ignorant about white supremacy racism you're saying they're ignorant about their mothers and fathers and grandparents and grandmothers and aunts and uncles like at minimum, if you're saying all the history and legacy, like so you're talking about all those white people that I just mentioned, you're saying they don't know their relatives and what have you. They didn't grow up with all these people, family photo albums and all that. Go to church with them. Religion of white supremacy. Beryl Satter, she wrote the book. And in fact, she didn't call it white privilege and all this other uh, niggardly, inaccurate language. The chapter in her book that we talked about, one of many was uh, a rope around the neck of black Chicago. That sounds like a lynching, like we're back at the altar of lynching and Sam Hose. And I asked her, why did you call it that? Would it be accurate to say that this is economic terrorism? Yep. No caveats, no hemming and hawing. And, Whoa, Gus, what are you talking about? I didn't come on here to talk about it. Yep. Economic terrorism. Yes, sir. That'd be accurate. And then she explained why. Now, how does she know all this? Her dad was one of the property owners. That's in the book. Same thing with Dr. Matthews, where I said his dad did turn the niggers over. And then they called him a nigger lover and beat him to death almost. white people are not ignorant about racism and they're not ignorant about yeah we stole these niggas property and what might take your property and what it's not ignorance that guy mentioned a lot as well Claudia Rankin and the rest of it that's white guests only with Claudia Rankin specifically uh, victim poet uh, where she was saying you know this won't change till white women have black babies and all that and then her play help that's at the shed plantational she said uh, that it was she wanted to focus on privilege 
and how 62% of white men voted for Trump. I said, what about the 52% of white women voters? How did they get left out? It's not just the man in the high castle. Uh, And then she said that white conservatives who supported President Trump support cutting social services programs. I was reminded, man, I've mentioned Strom Thurmond's name a lot. Our current president, who I think is a Democrat, if that means anything to you, I think he gave the eulogy for Strom raping, child raping Strom Thurmond. I could be in error, but I think that did happen. I don't know if you apologize for that. Maybe that's coming. Let's see. Uh, what else did she say? Oh, she said what white people don't think about Claudia Rankin is that she goes in. She has to work all hard to get the top of number one victims of racism. Dr. Wells, she used to say all the time we would be stunned if we could sit on the wall and hear what white people talk about. Then we would have a more accurate understanding of what white people are thinking about and talking about when there are no Negroes present. Then I think we would be a lot less likely to endorse the illogical position that white people don't think about, don't talk about white supremacy racism. Like, oh, they are talking about us all the time. Negro jokes all the time. Keeping these niggers from getting the job all the time. Wow. We were a little bit off on that one. Gus, too. Master deceivers. They do a good job. Uh, let's see. Oh, and she even said the structure. She said that structure that, you know, keeps me going through the back door and doesn't let me get to. I've said that. Well, she even said that this piece help was presenting privilege and talking about it in an abstract way we've had too much of that that's not what we need we need a logical understanding of white supremacy racism as a system is individuals classified as white who do things in all areas of people activity who use their time and energy to mistreat individuals they say are not white And a white woman having a child with a non-white person does not change that at all. President Obama. That's how we ended up with President Trump. Anywho. uh, Looks like we got all the hands. Folks are satisfied. Uh, We should be here on Wednesday. Dr. Gerald Horn, he's been with us repeatedly uh we'll talk about his book race war which is just amazing uh if you were with us for the man in the high castle then it'll be great tojo and all the rest we just were talking about world war ii so in fact two consecutive books have been talking about world war ii so we should be right in line for people who've been listening there uh but that'll be wednesday and then next sunday uh dr matthews should be with us white man his book uh, the altar of lynching about the lynching of Sam Hose irregular time again it's 2 p.m. Eastern 11 a.m. Pacific not to mess up his NCAA viewing white ball games all of that said uh, much obliged for folks tuning in hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening uh, sobriety would be best we just had that big report yesterday talking about all the days missed due to alcohol 
we need high functioning brain computers to solve our problems uh, in addition to being sober if you are out and about remember the executioners and what have you uh, man you want to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no if someone is being la uh, loud and rowdy in public you should be thinking whoa this could be an off-duty executioner member random white man with a gun I did not leave my house with the intention of dying and or killing exit call enforcement officials or whatever you're doing as you're vacating the area if you're in a vehicle you're not on the cell phone you're sober you are mindful about what is happening around you we need all of our attention and we're trying to do the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no including being buckled up as well that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no playing around with sexual activity throwaway children's eliminating throwaway black babies should be high on our list of counter racist activities Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>